Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. To have you here for what's going to be a very, very interesting morning. This is a quite a fascinating topic. Um, my name is John Hamry. I'm the president at CSIS. Before we begin and when we have outside groups, like you who are here with us today, we're responsible for your safety. So, uh, you know, Sarah Mendelson is the responsible safety officer, and so you're going to follow her directions. If anything happens, nothing's happened in six years, and I don't expect anything will happen today. But if it does, we'll hear a voice, and they'll say, uh, leave. And uh, the doors right immediately behind me are the ones which we'll use to exit. Uh, right, This is the door closest to the stairs. It'll take us down to the street level. We'll take two left-hand turns, a right-hand turn, go over to National Geographic, and I'll get everybody tickets for the exhibit on the Queens of Egypt. It's really a great show. Nothing's going to happen, don't worry. Um, we're very honored and pleased to have Undersecretary Mandelkar with us today. Uh, this is an extremely important topic, um, which is reflected by so many of you coming today. You want to learn more about how sanctions are used, how they're implemented, what they mean, are there questions that raise about it. All of these are big, vital questions in debate right now. Uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, Undersecretary Mandelkar with her background and expertise leading this for the government. Uh, uh, we were talking earlier, I had the privilege of being an undersecretary one time in a previous life form, and it is these are the best jobs in Washington because it's where operations and policy reinforce each other. It's really the, the ideal job in government, the one that's really fun. And uh, I think she's having a good time, and fortunately that's good for all of us. She brings a remarkable background as a lawyer uh, working in the Southern District of New York, uh, where she cut her teeth on some of hard, really hard cases, worked in the Justice Department, Department of Homeland Security, and now in the Treasury Department, and heading up probably the most important and dynamic part of the Treasury Department as it relates to American security and foreign policy. Uh, we're very fortunate to have her here, so could I ask you with your very warm applause, please welcome Undersecretary Sigal Mandelkar. Thank you so much, John, for that kind introduction, and it's a real pleasure to be here today as part of uh, this very important discussion about the impact of sanctions. The economic authority, authorities of the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence, or as we like to call it, TFI, play an increasingly central role in countering the nation's most critical national security and illicit finance threats. Our tools have been so effective that we frequently find ourselves at the tip of the spear as new security threats and challenges emerge around the globe. I spend my days and nights working to ensure that our powerful authorities are always deployed strategically. In the last two years, we have, among many other achievements, cut off billions of dollars in revenue that would have otherwise flowed to the world's largest state sponsor of terror, 
Iran. We've disrupted major networks that had provided Bashar al-Assad with oil and other resources he has used to brutalize the Syrian people, destabilize the region, and fund terror. We've choked off funds to Hezbollah, causing the terrorist organization to undertake an unprecedented plea for funding. We've expanded sectoral and other sanctions in response to Russia's continued aggression, leading to major Western firms abandoning joint exploration ventures with Russian companies and a drop in foreign direct investment. We've exposed and disrupted the malign activity of Russian oligarchs, such as Oleg Deripaska, who are closely linked to the Kremlin, forcing them to divest ownership in large corporations and rendering them pariahs to the international business community. We've disrupted North Korean shipping, financial, and export networks, and worked in concert with our allies and the UN to create a diplomatic opening for discussion. We've led the Financial Action Task Force in adopting comprehensive measures for how countries must regulate and supervise digital assets, including digital or cryptocurrencies, to address and mitigate the associated anti-money laundering and terrorist risks. We've targeted and disrupted networks of human rights abusers and corrupt officials all over the world, including the illegitimate Maduro regime in Venezuela and kleptocrats in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And we've exposed and disrupted numerous illicit finance schemes around the world, from ISIS to Al-Qaeda, from drug kingpins to transnational criminal organizations. The daily pace is intense. Since the beginning of this administration, we have issued close to 190 tranches of sanctions, targeting more than 2,600 individuals, entities, vessel, and aircraft. We have issued scores of advisories and convened engagements with banks, the maritime and aviation industries, the energy and real estate sectors, and many others. In just this calendar year, we have issued nearly $1.3 billion in civil monetary penalties and settlements for financial institutions and corporate actors related to violations of our sanctions programs. Given the pre prevalence of economic statecraft in addressing so many of today's most significant and pressing national security challenges, we are constantly evaluating the impact and effectiveness of our programs. In doing so, I like to draw upon our great history. It is an honor to be the Undersecretary of TFI during our 15th anniversary year. Although TFI itself is a relatively recent creation, the foundation of our program was laid in, the in 1940, out of an effort to prevent Hitler and the Nazis from seizing US-held assets from the countries that they invaded. In those days, Treasury Department officials ensured that billions of dollars were kept out of the hands of the Nazis. 
Tragically, this didn't stop the genocide that was underway. But imagine how much worse it could have been if Hitler had had access to those funds. Treasury moved swiftly then. We move swiftly now as we constantly innovate and develop new strategies to keep funds out of the hands of dangerous actors around the world. No other government in the world has an organization like TFI. It includes the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, which is the beating heart of our sanctions program, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, which safeguards the financial system from illicit use and money laundering, the Office of Intelligence and Analysis, which is a member of the intelligence community and has a cadre of talented threat finance analysts, and the Office of Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, which develops policy and conducts extensive international outreach. This organizational structure under one undersecretary integrates unparalleled insight into the financing of emerging global threats with powerful economic authorities to counter them. I hope you'll indulge me as I take a moment to talk about the career professionals of TFI, who are the best in the world at what they do. These dedicated women and men work tirelessly to protect our national security and our financial system. They are among the smartest, most determined, and indefatigable public servants that I have had the honor to work with. They believe in creativity, innovation, teamwork, and great ideas. I like to say that TFI is a small but mighty organization. We draw upon the diversity of background and experiences of our people, collaborating with one another with a spirit and history of collegiality to punch well above our weight over and over again. Every single day I am struck by the fascinating life stories and diverse family histories of those who work in TFI. I am the first in my immediate family born in this great country, the proud child of immigrants who came to the United States to study and ultimately pursue the American dream. We have professionals who themselves grew up overseas and came to the United States just like my parents to go to college, as well as, as those who grew up in rural America and were the first in their families to attend college. Our TFI family includes those whose families have suffered directly at the hands of cruel and authoritarian regimes, including in places like Europe during the Holocaust and Armenia. We have those whose families were forced to flee their countries due to persecution, losing everything, including many family members. I recently traveled to Europe with a TFIer whose grandfather was part of the Belgian resistance during World War II, but was captured and sent to the concentration camp Buchenwald. We have TFIers who have made tremendous sacrifice to
to serve their country. There are those who have served in the military and suffered significant injury, and those who still serve in the reserves. Every single person I've encountered at TFI has a unique perspective, a story that has driven them to public service. Each and every one of them influence the collective tapestry of TFI. TFI has achieved great things in its history. Prior to 9-11, our nation's sanctions authorities were largely embargo-based. Think of Cuba, Libya, Sudan, and the early Iran sanctions programs. Starting in 1995, Treasury first imposed targeted sanctions on Colombian drug cartels. And five years later, the Kingpin Act provided similar authorities on a global basis. These new sanctions authorities set the stage for the effective use of targeted sanctions on terrorists focused first in the Middle East and then, out of tragic necessity, exp expanded globally after 9-11. When I took the oath as undersecretary, it became my mission to build upon tre Treasury's experiences and successes by ensuring that all of our efforts are strategic and intelligence-driven, focused on achieving specific national security objectives and illicit finance objectives, and calibrated to take maximum advantage of the myriad tools and authorities at our disposal. In short, my challenge was to make certain that we are not merely responding to the increase in calls for action, but that our economic statecraft is agile, strategic, impactful. Sanctions as well as other economic authorities and measures are tools very powerful tools, to be sure, used in support of a broader strategy to achieve a US policy goal or objectives. Sanctions alone will rarely, if ever, comprise the entire solution to a national security threat or human rights or corruption crisis. Sanctions often, however, play an enormously important role in achieving these strategies, and an equally important role in disrupting money from going to malign actors who seek to do bad things around the globe. Every time we utilize these tools to disrupt that flow of money, we keep our country safer. Within TFI, we are laser-focused on predicting and achieving an intended impact against a specific actor or actors to affect a broader goal. We are constantly thinking through which complement of tools, sanctions, any money laundering measures, enforcement actions, foreign engagement, intelligence, and analysis, and private sector partnerships, among others, are most impactful when countering specific challenges. We then carefully orchestrate and sequence the application of these tools to build off of each other and nest them in a broader strategic approach. 
To enhance our integration, I established strategic impact units comprised of representatives from each TFI component who work together to develop strategies and implementation plans that are intelligence-driven in support of specific domestic or foreign policy priorities, using each component's authorities in conjunction with the larger interagency community. Before and after applying economic measures, we assess the expected and actual impact of that action. These impacts may be the, disrupt, the, the disruption of funds going to a national security threat or illicit activity. The isolation of an illicit actor from the US and global financial system. Direct economic or financial loss to an illicit actor or regime. A decreased capability for an adversary to conduct further illicit activity. The hardening of our financial system against illicit finance threats. An improvement in meeting global standards in high-risk jurisdictions and elsewhere. Or a fundamental change in behavior. This pre- and post-action analysis requires discipline and diligence, which can be tough given the workload that we face. But understanding the impact of our actions is critical to determining effectiveness in achieving our objectives and making any necessary adjustments to our strategies in the future. Our decision-making also includes taking great care to understand and address any potential unintended impacts of each sanctions action. Treasury and the State Department have many tools to mitigate where appropriate these unintended consequences of our actions while maintaining the pressure on the target of our sanctions, including through our licensing authority, waivers, and calibrated actions such as sectoral sanctions, FAQs, guidance, and advisories. We use general and specific licenses to ensure that humanitarian transactions, including the provision of food and medicine, are authorized in sanctions programs such as Iran, Syria, and Venezuela. This is particularly important in countries where you see kleptocrats or regime officials try to use humanitarian goods as a political weapon to line their own pockets or as a cover for nefarious activities. One way in which we have maximized the impact of our actions is pri prioritizing what we call network sanctions. Network sanctions recognize that a bad actor rarely acts alone. Instead, they frequently rely upon complicated structures that include shell companies, business partners, facilitators, enablers, and middlemen to disguise the nature of their activity and launder their money. When we focus on these broader networks and their assets, we can more effectively block a bad actor's ability to access 
their ill-gotten gains, making it more difficult for them to use the global marketplace or continue in their business arrangements. We can also have a significant impact on their reputations, which can result in dismissal from formal commercial or official positions and trigger the initiation of other investigations and proceedings. For example, when we designated Dan Gertler for using his relationship with then-President Kabila of the DRC to secure grossly underpriced mining contracts, depriving the Congolese people of more than a billion dollars in lost revenue, we also designated 33 entities in his network. We then followed up by designating 14 additional entities a few months later. These designations came at a critical time as the U.S. applied concerted pressure on Kabila and his enablers to abide by the terms of their constitution to hold elections which he ultimately did. Similarly, last month we designated Samir Faz, a Syrian oligarch, and 15 individuals and entities who leveraged the atrocities of the Syrian conflict into a profit-generating genera enterprise. Faz directly supported the murderous Assad regime and built luxury developments on land stolen from those fleeing Assad's brutality. Our action there included the Four Seasons Hotel in Damascus as being owned or controlled by Faz. And within days of that action, the Four Seasons cut ties with the property as should others around the world. These kinds of actions have a chilling effect on those who think that they can profit off of the back of the innocent. Network sanctions can take longer to investigate and develop, but through their use, we are sending the message that there are real consequences to engaging in illicit or corrupt behavior. I've had the humbling opportunity to meet with victims of atrocities and violent repression from Syria, Burma, South Sudan, the DRC, and elsewhere. They talk about how when we use these kinds of sanctions, they see the impact firsthand on the ground. Military and police officials who have been removed or changed their behavior out of fear that they too would be sanctioned. Less fuel for Assad to put into the tanks and the planes that very sadly have killed civilians. And the list goes on. Another part of our strategic approach is close coordination with our partners. That includes coordinating with international partners to amplify our actions, or working with those in the trenches of the economic battlefield, banks and other financial institutions to maintain robust anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism safeguards. The private sector's vigilance likewise makes our tools and authorities that much more effective and we have prioritized strengthening these partnerships with the private sector by providing them with the vital information that they need to track, disrupt, and report 
illicit activity. We have been doing this increasingly over the last two years by issuing more detailed press releases, increasing the number of advisories, directly engaging with financial institutions, and issuing specific guidance to help the private sector disrupt illicit finance and build robust compliance programs that harden their networks against the latest threats from around the globe. Just this year, OFAC, for example, for the first time ever outlined the essential components of an effective sanctions compliance program, which we are incorporating into our settlement agreements and are actively monitoring and enforcing for compliance. Across the board, we have adopted these calibrated, integrated, impact-focused approaches. Today, I'd like to briefly discuss with you how we have done so with one of our major programs, Iran. As the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, Iran prioritizes funding for brutal regimes and terrorists over supporting its own people. It's provided billions of dollars to terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, funds Bashar al-Assad's campaign against his own citizens, and sends vulnerable refugees and child soldiers to Syria where they fight and they die on behalf of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and its Quds Force. Iran is also a country with zero financial transparency. As groups funding terrorism like the IRGC and its Quds Force remain deeply embedded in the Iranian economy. The central bank itself, the banker of the Iranian government and supervisor of all Iranian banks has funneled hundreds of millions of dollars to the Quds Force Hezbollah and Hamas. To meaningfully counter this national security challenge, we have engaged in a comprehensive approach using every tool in our toolbox to tactically and strategically apply maximum economic pressure and to build international coalitions. Last November, the president fully reimposed sanctions on the greatest revenue-generating sectors of Iran's economy, energy, financial, shipping, precious metals, aviation, and automotive. And we have added more than 1,000 individuals, entities, aircraft, and vessels to our specially designated nationals and blocked persons list. We have further increased this economic pressure by targeting Iran's most profitable entities, most, no most notably its oil sector. The U.S. government has severely limited the flow of oil by ending the significant reduction exceptions, or SREs. To further disrupt the regime's illicit oil revenue, we have taken action after action against vast international networks attempting to illicitly supply the regime with revenue for its destructive behavior. This includes an action against a network that provided millions of barrels of Iranian oil to the Syrian government and facilitated the movement of hundreds of millions to the IRGC Quds Force, Hamas, and Hezbollah. 
In that specific action, we also designated two Central Bank of Iran officials, a subsidiary of the Russian Ministry of Energy that was involved, and a Syrian businessman and his companies. This summer, we designated, among others, Iran's largest petrochemical holding company, Persian Gulf Petrochemical Industries Company, specifically for providing financial support to the engineering conglomerate of the IRGC. Together with its designated subsidiaries, this company controlled 40% of Iran's total petrochemical production capacity and is responsible for 50% of Iran's total petrochemical exports. If you look at the sanctions we have issued in the Iran program, you will see that time and again, we are targeting networks that support the IRGC, the Quds Force, and other terrorist organizations. But the tools we've employed to apply maximum pressure on Iran have not been limited to just sanctions. We have also done extensive international engagement and education all over the world to enhance our collective ability to identify the threats posed by Iran and to cut off their illicit financing. Last year, through FinCEN, we published a comprehensive advisory on Iran alerting financial institutions and others of the ways in which the regime has used these front companies, forged documents, and other deceptive practices to circumvent sanctions and deceive private and public actors. And to counter Iranian efforts to evade our sanctions on oil sh shipments, OFAC issued a lengthy maritime advisory describing for shipping companies, insurers, vessel owners, managers, and operators the deceptive shipping practices and risks associated with dealing with Iranian oil and facilitating oil shipments to Syri Syrian government-owned and operated ports. We have also done extensive international engagement and education with key partners and allies to enhance our collective ability to disrupt illicit funds going to Iran's malign activities. And we are now seeing action at the Financial Action Task Force, or the FATF, to reimpose consequences on Iran for their severe AML-CFT deficiencies. This multi-pronged maximum economic pressure campaign is working. Iran's military spending has decreased significantly since the end of April 2018. Iran's total trade has declined markedly, including, of course, its oil exports, which have decreased substantially in recent months. In fact, the Iranian president has declared that the economy is the worst it's been in 40 years. All of this means that the regime has far less revenue to divert to terrorism and other destabilizing activities. Our actions targeting Hezbollah and its financial facilitators are also having real financial impact, which likewise means that Hezbollah has less revenue to fund its destructive activities. 
In a January media report, employees of Hezbollah's media and military systems complained of deep pay cuts. And in March, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah made an unprecedented call to his supporters to increase donations, pleading that fundraising efforts must be stepped up. This is the direct result of our pressure on Iran and its proxies. Determining impact and overall effectiveness is a complex and complicated process that requires both patience and flexibility. Why patience? Because while we continually monitor for these impacts, we must acknowledge that some impacts may change or dissipate over time. Our adversaries are always going to be determined in achieving their malign objectives. And sanctions targets adopt mitigation strategies of their own. It may also be that some impacts are cumulative or only reveal themselves after a longer period of time. We must take care against reading too much into the immediate reactions to a designation and instead focus on the long-term effectiveness of our strategies and plans. Why flexibility? Because as carefully as we plan, the very nature and global scope of our actions that means that there may be unintended impacts that require adjustments to our plans, the use of licensing and waivers to prevent harm to innocent parties or allies. As we ramp up powerful economic pressure to achieve impact, these authorities allow us to fine tune that pressure as situations develop. We need the ability to quickly adjust our efforts to focus on the most high value targets. Over the last two years, TFI has built upon the tremendous history and work of this organization to mature and evolve how we think about impact and how that thinking drives our actions. We have become ever more sophisticated and stronger as we build our comprehensive approach. We utilize all of the tools in our economic toolbox in a calibrated fashion and we wisely apply the economic leverage we have to protect our national security. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Undersecretary Mundelkar, for being here. And, and uh, on a personal note, always really appreciate it when, uh, when, when folks recognize the hardworking sort of men and women of the civil service who are, are putting a lot of effort into all of the things that, that you make possible. I know you have a hard stop in a little bit, but I did want to take a, an opportunity to ask you a few questions sure. um, that you, you addressed much of in your, in your comments. But, you know, <clears throat> the title of our event today is Are Sanctions Working? And you rightly point out that sanctions effectiveness is largely seen in the context of a broader foreign policy effort, in addition to the sort of immediacy of the effectiveness of the tool that you're using or the pressure campaign that you're putting in place. There is a lot of criticism that as we ramp up the use of this tool, right, and you called it sort of the pointy end of the spear, that you can dull it, right? And, and if, if, if you use it too much or, we're, or it's not sort of embedded in a more comprehensive strategy to assure, one, its effectiveness, but then two, maybe it's removal sometimes as well, 
that there's that risk. How do you think about the, that risk of, uh, of, of, them, of sort of dulling the tool over time? So I think actually it's a, it's, this is a conversation that has been going on. Oh, can you hear me? No. I think it's a conversation that's been going on for some time. Actually, the argument that we've been overusing our tools, we've heard for, me, for many, many years, although it's something that people have been um, talking about a lot today. Look, I, I look back to what we did, how this whole program started, and I talked a little bit about it in my, in my remarks, right, which is uh, it started in 1940. I mean, the, the, for those of you who don't know the history, it actually started on the day that Hitler invaded Denmark and, and Norway, and Secretary Morgenthau was looking at the news that morning. He had no authority to do so, but he called the head of the New York Fed, and he said, literally, he said, freeze them, <clears throat> just freeze them, meaning Denmark and Norway's assets that are held in, in, in New York. Because he knew again that if Hitler quickly got access to those funds, that would have that would have been um, that would have terrible. He he didn't know what was going what was what was about to ensue, but he had that he had that sense. Uh, and so the head of the New York Fed did that. He froze those funds, and it was the next day that President Roosevelt actually um, signed an executive order um, authorizing the use of the tool in that way. And as I mentioned, uh, the Treasury Department in those years managed to freeze billions of dollars. That's, and, and that's in 1940s money, not in today's money. So imagine if back then somebody had said, look, you're talking about freezing the assets of entire countries. You can't, you can't do that. It was the right thing to do then, and it's the right thing to do, to do today. Because when you look at how we're using this tool, we're using it very pointedly, very strategically, again, to disrupt the ability of bad actors to do bad things. Mm -hmm. that, at the end of the day, that's, that is our objective all over the world, in all of our programs. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's extraordinarily important. At the same time, we have to be mindful uh, that there may be unintended consequences. Uh, and so we're also always thinking about those potential effects. Um, and that's when you see things like um, FAQs and general licenses or specific licenses from us uh, where we're carefully thinking through in advance of the launch of a major action uh, how to make sure uh, that we're also protecting um, our allies, our partners, our, our companies. As a general rule, do you track the ways in which you mentioned, you know, uh, malign actors are <coughs> determined or targets of sanctions are determined to get around them? We're going to talk about this on a later panel. Do you track the ways in which folks are trying to get around those systems, not necessarily to evade them, but, but to inoculate themselves from the reach of, course, of the tool. Of course, you know, we, that's a big part, it's a big part of our effort. And again, I would say there, for years, for years, the likes of Al-Qaeda, right, and, and other terrorist organizations have been trying to get around the international financial system or to hide the way in which they move money mm -hmm. um, to evade, to evade our our, um, our sanctions. And that's when you see things like some of our broader authorities or the network sanctions that I talked about, where we're literally going after not just an individual, but their front companies, their shell companies, their financial facilitators, uh, among, among others. So we track it every day. I, I like to say, you know, this tre the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury Department is actually, I believe, the only Treasury finance ministry in the world that has an intelligence agency. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and it was a brilliant idea back in 2004 to include, to have an intelligence ag agency in the Treasury Department that we use to support so much, so much of what we do mm -hmm. to track, to disrupt, among others. One of the additional sort of criticisms, and again, this can be levied on the foreign policy approach or on the sanctions approach, you know, uh, specifically, is the idea of coordination. And, and you brought it up in a number of realms that I was thinking about it, which is one, do we coordinate with allies uh, on these things? And what the danger of not doing that. Uh, two, you mentioned though working with the private sector more to sort of understand and make it a cooperative approach as opposed to uh, that's one where there's a lot of ambiguity. But then also just with Congress, right? I mean, even today we're going to see some votes taken on the Hill on, on certain things that relate to sanctions. H how do you manage such a complex set of, of coordination, particularly when it's viewed by a lot of people as being key to this being a successful effort? Well, first and foremost, I'm ad I, I manage it with, again, the, some of the most fabulous career professionals, I think, in the, in, the, in the federal government. But we put a lot of effort into strengthening those partnerships around the world, uh, you know, on the Hill and with, and with the private sector. Um, and in fact, in, in, in many circumstances, what you've seen is that we build international coalitions uh, to target malign activity. A great example of that um, is in the ISIS context, where we have uh, a counter-ISIS finance uh, coalition where we meet very regularly with many, many countries around the world to share information, to take targeted disruptive activity, to do capacity building, which is something uh, that we've done to, to great extent. Uh, and, and there are many other examples of that. You look at the Financial Action Task Force, which again, we had the US presidency um, over, the, over the last year. That's a global co coalition centered on improving international um, AML CFT standards. Uh, and, our, and our folks are um, uh, meeting in FATF sessions or, me, or, or, other, or regional bodies as we speak, right, doing great work with our, with our partners. We also do a lot of information sharing with our partners around the world because we know um, sanctions is just one tool to disrupt activity. We're gonna be much more successful if we work in close partnership with allies and partners uh, to, to disrupt that activity. And of course, with the Hill, um, we have very active discussions and engagements on how we can make sure that this tool remains incredibly effective, incredibly um, uh, flexible too, so that we can adjust our strategies and plans as we, as we move forward. And I want to take a minute, I spent so much time talking about private sector partnerships because at the beginning and the end of the day, um, it is the private sector that works uh, to implement our sanctions that um, has many banks, for example, have these very sophisticated financial crimes units all over the world. And I, and I meet with banks both here and all over the world. Uh, and we have to continue to educate them to make sure that they're not enabling bad actors to move money through the international financial system. That's great. Well, I, I know you have got someone to be, but I did want to ask one more, one more question, which you didn't talk as much about today, but has certainly been a focus of some of the testimony you've given in the past, which is, this is a very complex and growing area, particularly as we're seeing sort of, you know, uh, digital currencies and a whole bunch of other uh, uh, tools evolve. As you think of the future of your organization, what are the additional sort of authorities and capabilities you're going to need to keep the tool as uh, effective as you think it's going to need yeah, to be? Yeah, so I, I will say we've been um, very grateful to Congress to, for giving us um, increased resources that we've asked for over the last couple of years. You've seen, a, I think, a significant uh, uh, leap in, in the resources that we've been, we've been provided at our, at our great urging, but really because there's so much support on the Hill for what we're doing, and that's 
been uh, very, very important. Look, in the area of emerging technologies, um, we have to stay way above the curve. And here again, we have just incredibly sophisticated uh, career professionals who are constantly uh, tracking these emerging technologies in the crypto space, for example, I have a strategic impact unit just focused on cryptocurrency that's comprised of members from each and every one of, of my components. Uh, and, and we're doing um, an enormous amount of work both here in the United States and globally uh, to make sure that crypto isn't, as we have seen, being used to fund malign activities. Look, bad actors are always going to try to find new and sophisticated ways to move money, right? That's, that's, that's been happening for, for many, many years. Crypto in particular, um, when it doesn't have the right uh, um, safeguards in place, has attributes that can be very appealing to bad actors. Anonymity, uh, global speed, settlement, and, and speed. And so a lot of our effort has been put into ensuring that things like anonymity are not, uh, in fact, being incorporated into these virtual currency exchangers and administrators, that they follow the same rules that other financial institutions follow. And we do a lot of things to ensure that that's the case. We actually supervise and examine virtual currency exchanges and administrators. We've issued enforcement actions. Um, uh, both here and abroad over virtual currency exchangers and administrators that didn't follow our rules. We're doing what I said with the FATF, which is that we're really pushing um, global standards and we're very pleased that they were adopted uh, around the world. And we're also sharing information with virtual currency exchangers and administrators that are following the rules, right? Because it's that same effort that tightening us of, of the safeguards around virtual currency exchanges and ad administrators that's going to ensure that they're not, they're not being used and abused. That's great. Well, thank you. I, I, I do know you have a hard step. We want to say thank you uh, for getting us kicked off on the right start. We're going to be talking about some of these strategic long-term implications of the use of sanctions as we see them from various sectors and, uh, and, and foreign policy realms. But we really appreciate you uh, spending some time thanking, uh, joining us to talk about your perspective. on. Thank you so much. Thank and you. I look forward to hearing about the panels for the rest of the day. Great. Thank Good. you. Please thank join you. me in thanking our Secretary. Okay, to get us started on the second half of the program, I'd like to invite up my colleague, Matt Goodman, uh, who holds the Simon Chair in Political Economy, and a, a bunch of my other regional colleagues as well, who he'll introduce to talk about the implementation of sanctions regimes in various regional contexts. So please, Matt. Well, good morning. Um, uh, as Sarah said, I'm Matt Goodman. I uh, run the uh, Global Economics Program here at CSIS and delighted to join uh, Sarah and her team in uh, participating in this event, which has uh, already been very uh, educational to me. I've learned some things, and, uh, and that's the point of uh, the best of CSIS programs. So uh, delighted you could be here uh, with us today. Hello to online uh, viewers as well. I know there are a lot of people um, uh, watching from, uh, from home, as it were. Um, so um, I've got, uh, there are two kinds of panels at CSS. they're hard panels and then they're kind of the county fair panels I call them, which are like when you walk up to the, you know, the sort of machine and you put a quarter in and a prize comes out 
And that's this kind of <laughs> panel where I just put in a quarter and these guys do the, the hard work. Um, delighted to be joined by four of my colleagues here at CSIS who um, cover uh, many of the key countries that are the subject of sanctions, the target of sanctions, um, and have real expertise in, in, uh, in how those are being applied and where they're working and not. So to my immediate left, your right, is Heather Conley, who runs our Europe program here, um, and among other countries on this list, uh, covers uh, Russia, Turkey, and probably several other uh, bad actors that are on the, uh, on the list. Um, next to Heather is Jeff Mankoff, who's with our Russia-Eurasia program, also an expert in Russia sanctions, and uh, delighted to have Jeff with us as well. Uh, next to him is John Alterman, who runs our Middle East program. I think Iran is in the Middle East, uh, uh, at least the way we define it uh, here. So Turkey Iran, isn't, but Iran is. Tur Turkey isn't, but Iran is. Um, so, uh, so we'll, I'm sure, hear um, uh, from John about uh, Iran uh, shortly. And then Moises Rendon from our Americas program, um, again, among others, Venezuela is within his uh, geographic reach. So, uh, so we've got a, a great uh, swath of um, expertise here that can cover a lot of these issues. So I'm going to jump in and I'm going to first just uh, do a round uh, asking everybody to ex uh, give us a sense of how sanctions fit into U.S. foreign policy towards uh, your respective country or region. Um, and, with, and I'll start with Heather um, to, to maybe step back a little further from that in terms of your sense, because you've followed sanctions from many directions, sort of how sanctions overall are part of U.S. foreign policy, what they're aimed to achieve um, from your perspective, and, you know, talk about Russia and Turkey as well. Sure, of course. Thanks. Well, Matt, thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you know, I think it just bears repeating sanctions are a tool as part of a larger policy framework. And the challenge has been that we have used sanctions so much, they have become a substitute for our policy because we are unable to articulate a policy that looks at the long-term desired uh, change, whether that's Russia, whether uh, you can look at other broader regions, Iran, and et cetera. So now we have used uh, this very powerful sanctions tool in lieu of policy. And sometimes we just simply turn to sanctions because we want to do something. We want to express our policy uh, you know, discontent with, with an actor. There are different uh, reasons that compel uh, the role of sanctions, violations of international law. So when Russia violated the Chemical Weapons Convention uh, in the United Kingdom with the Skripal poisonings, that requires a response or illegally annexes Crimea or invades uh, Ukraine. Um, but there are other sanctions that we just want to simply change behavior. We don't want a country to pursue a specific path. That could be the example of the S-400s. Uh, in, in Turkey, for sure. Um, but again, we need an overarching policy framework for which the sanction tool moves us in that policy. And this is really, and then I'll, I will step back into my uh, portfolio, uh, sanctions can be powerful if we coordinate, as the Undersecretary mentioned, our allies to support our interests. And this is where Europe plays an absolutely vital role. If we don't bring our partners along in our sanctioning policy, yes, we can. We have a powerful economic tool, and we can certainly force 
uh, European countries and companies to make some decisions. But I think what I hope we can spend a little time on is that there are consequences for the overuse of US sanctions. And I think we are now fully entering that space. Um, because yes, we can, we can f uh, make and force uh, companies and countries to make some choices, but what we're increasingly seeing is the antibodies being developed to these sanctions. So certainly the European Union, its creation of the special purpose vehicle, INSTEX, to try to carve out a path which would be immune from U.S. sanctions is a powerful indicator uh, that, that that separation is happening. Russia, as it has now uh, had, a, you know, since 2011, a series of uh, U.S., European, other sanctions on it, it is now decoupling or starting the process of decoupling from the international financial system, creating that separation uh, so it won't be impacted by future sanctions. So we also have to think about consequences of overuse. But again, if I can leave everyone with one thought, Sanctions as a tool is no substitute for overarching policy, and we have been missing an action on policy frameworks for a very long time, and now sanctions has become the substitute for our policy, which is why we're spending so much of our time focusing on it. Great, okay, excellent overview, and a, a very clear point uh, that I think uh, is, is, is very important to uh, continue to frame this conversation, so I appreciate that, and I'm gonna come back and ask you more about the consequences, but let me ask Jeff, to dive in a little more on Russia. I think we're, uh, there are at least 60 different ways we're hitting Russia over about 15 different things. Um, I've lost count. Yeah. And um, You have a spreadsheet though, that's and really so good. Maybe <laughs> if you could just actually quickly just talk about what the most important of those are and, 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 and what they're intended to achieve. Yeah, well I would start maybe where Heather stopped, which is that our Russia sanctions suffer from a lack of clarity about the ultimate goals. Um, because we have so many different packages of sanctions that have been imposed on Russian entities, it's kind of a mishmash of objectives that in some ways are not uh, congruent with one another. So we really started this push for sanctions with the invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. And the first push for sanctions was very clearly linked to <laughs> Russian actions in Ukraine and was linked to the signing of the Minsk ceasefire agreement, which effectively meant that if the Minsk agreement was going to be implemented, there was a path to removing the sanctions and moving back to a kind of normalized economic relationship. What we've seen over the last couple of years, though, on instances from the Skripal case to the 2016 election interference to um, Russian involvement in other conflicts around the world, has been a push to use sanctions as a way of imposing costs without linking those costs to specific policy changes that we would like the Russian government to undertake. And so I think what's happening is that there's an increased perception in Moscow that sanctions are effectively the new normal. And that Russia's strategic... I'm not sure we can hear oh, you, so go ahead. Sorry. I think that... Yeah, it stuck the microphone up under my right. chin. Um, and so I think that in Russia, there's an increasing perception that sanctions are now part of the landscape, that this is the new normal, and that Russia's strategic survival as an independent great power requires increased decoupling from the US-led international economic order and deepening of ties with particularly China, but other countries that want to similarly build up alternatives to that order. 
Um, and so I think we've gotten ourselves in a position where sanctions have become the go-to tool when we want to impose costs on Russia. And to be sure, we've succeeded in imposing costs. But at the same time, whether those costs are linked to anything that could be considered a U.S. strategic objective over the longer term is, is a more complicated question. And I think Russia's desire to decouple itself from the United States and from the West to build up its financial or economic sovereignty to partner with China um, suggests that we may have reached a point where um, relying on sanctions absent some kind of diplomatic vision for how we end this confrontation or what some kind of new normal status quo looks like is, is difficult. Okay, thanks, um, uh, Jeff, and, and I will follow up on a couple of points you made uh, in a second. But uh, John, so um, Undersecretary Mandelker um, started and ended her presentation by talking about Iran. Uh, so it seems as though that's a high priority target here. What are we uh, trying to achieve with Iran, or what do you think the administration is trying to achieve? Thank you very much, Matt. Good morning. I'm afraid that in, the, in Matt's country fair analogy, I represent another very small prize and certainly not the big stuffed animal you all really want. Because, in fact, I agree with my colleagues that there has been an effort to use sanctions. And when you're not really sure what to do, you come up with different sanctions and you come up with sanctions against different people. It seems to me that the, the, there are four basic purposes for sanctions against Iran. And, and it's interesting how we got here, but let me first talk about the four purposes. Right, one is, as, as Undersecretary Mendelkar said, you want to limit funds for malign activities. The hard thing about using sanctions to limit funds for malign activities is sovereign governments tend to have fairly large budgets, and the malign activities Iran does are fairly cheap to do. So whether you're how much you're actually able to do to limit the activities by living, limiting the funding for an activities when you're talking about a state rather than an organization or an individual, I think is, is a harder case to make. Uh, one is if you just, as, as Jeff said, if you just want to punish somebody, impose costs, send a message. Okay, we certainly do that with Iran. Uh, one idea is that you, you're trying to bring about the collapse of your adversary. I think it's hard to collapse Iran through sanctions, but that may be, it's certainly been rumored to be uh, an objective of the administration. And the last, is the way the Obama administration used sanctions on Iran, which is how do you prepare for negotiations? You want to increase your leverage so that not, you're not going to fix the problem through sanctions. You're going to fix the problems through negotiations. And the way you prepare yourself for the negotiations is to impose sanctions, impose costs that make the counterpart more willing to compromise. Um, you could argue that that's the administration's policy. And you would have evidence for it. And the evidence for the other side is a tweet by real Donald J. Trump on Monday that says, the Iranians never won a war but never lost a negotiation. So frankly, if you're on the Iranian side and you're trying to figure out what does America intend through the sanctions, it's hard to say we're preparing for a negotiation. The president goes hot and cold about whether he wants to negotiate with the Iranians or not. But it feels like it may be, maybe for the collapse argument, the punishment argument I think is irrelevant. The limiting funds I think is irrelevant for a sovereign state. The fact is Iran as a regime has been under sanctions for 40 years. They expect to be under sanctions for the next 40 years. Their normal 
is not what we consider normal. Their normal is not a free and open economy that's integrated with the world. Their, their normal is we deal with a hostile environment and we try to, to block what we can block. It feels to me like, as, as Heather pointed out, that sanctions, rather than providing us a pathway to somewhere different, are a tool we use to say we're going to do something and don't move us. The interesting thing about the Iran sanctions, I just want to touch on this briefly, the original sort of good cop, bad cop was that Congress would sanction Iran and the president would waive the sanctions to enhance the president's negotiating position against the Iranians. That all seemed fine until you had a president who was much more eager than Congress to sanction the Iranians. And part of the challenge we have calibrating sanctions, using them in a constructive way, is Congress hasn't quite figured out both practically and politically how to shift from being the bad cop to even being an even-handed cop. It's, it's the, the, the law is to sanction the heck out of Iran and the president's taking advantage of the way the law is constructed. Interesting. I do a lot of work on trade, and there's a sort of similar dynamic where the traditional role of Congress is the, the bad guy, and, and the administration as the more reasonable has been flipped, and, and that's, um, that's made all this challenging. Okay, I'm going to come back to you as well, John, but Moises, um, Venezuela, uh, a problem for some time, but relatively, compared to these other uh, places, a, a sort of newer and fresher problem. Uh, why are we sanctioning Venezuela? What are we trying to achieve? Yeah, thank you, Matt. This is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I feel that Venezuela is a, is a bit of a different case now because uh, the country has been sanctioned only within four years, and I think it's one of those countries that the amount of sanctions and the diversity of sanctions has wrapped up very rapidly, right? Um, so uh, first, we have about six type of sanctions on Venezuela. And I apologize to my treasury colleagues if they define those sanctions differently. But the way I see it, first, we have individual sanctions. And the US has imposed over 120 individual sanctions on Venezuela. The first one came in in 2015. <clears throat> and those during the Trump administration, that number went up rapidly. Canada, the European Union, Panama follow. Um, there are many other countries who have not sanctioned Venezuela yet, but it's important to keep in mind that it's, it's more multilateral than, than, than we think, and, and I want to come back to the multilateral issue too. Um, then we have like sectorial sanctions that are touching into different industries, right? And the first sanction we had was um, the credit sanction, which is limiting the Maduro regime to access to U.S. financial markets, and also it's limiting to issue new debt. Uh, which is a tool that the Maduro and his predecessor Chavez used to finance his illicit activities, right? The second sectorial sanctions is, is a cryptocurrency sanction. We talk about that a little bit. Um, Venezuela was the first nation state to issue or to try issue a cryptocurrency to circumvent the U.S. The US sanctions, right? That, that, that was an unsuccessful attempt. Um, I think as, as for now, that cryptocurrency does not exist. You can't buy it, you can't sell it. Uh, so therefore, I don't think it's playing a role right now on behalf of, of Maduro. That, that being said, there are many other tools that he may be using, but not on the Petro. Then we have banking sanctions too, that kick on, on, on 2018. Um, the banking is literally cutting off the banking, the banking system in Venezuela from the banking system in the war. 
and it's also targeting specific banks, including Russians and other banks that are deeply connected to the Maduro regime. And this is making it more difficult for, for Maduro to issue payments and receive payments from abroad, which is also very important in that sense. And then uh, two more, gold sanctions, which is limiting the Maduro regime to, to sell gold to, to actors. Is this set of sanctions by the US has, has been more limited because the US doesn't engage, has not engaged on, on, on the gold sector in Venezuela, but it kind of deterred other actors like Turkey and Iran to engage on, 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 on gold in a, at some extent, right? Although that's still happening. And then finally, we have the oil sanction, which is kind of the hammer and this really has created an impact that undeniable on, 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 the, on, on Maduro's capacity to, to receive oil revenues and use that for, for, for anything. So in a way, Venezuela has been, we also have different packages of sanctions and, and it's been in a very short term and that we have seen those developments. Great, okay, well, a lot more to, to pursue here, but let me um, do a round on the sort of costs and benefits. You've all touched on this um, directly or indirectly, but let me sort of dive into that a little more and, and ask about whether it's working and you know, in what ways it is creating unintended consequences as well. And let me start with John, actually, because you laid out this sort of four uh, potential objectives. Um, you know, Russia, I'm sorry, Iran, malign acts, malign activities still seem to be going on, so I'm not sure it's working there. Um, uh, regime change, the regime's still there. Um, leverage doesn't seem as though we're using that. Economic cost, there does seem to be pretty significant, as the Undersecretary said, and as you're just reading the papers, it sounds like it is having a real economic cost on the country. Um, you know, is it working? And, um, and on the flip side, what, what price are we paying? Um, for this with Iran? Well, I said part, you know, part of working is what, you, what your desired outcome is. And if your desired outcome is Iran has a foreign policy that looks like Switzerland, the answer is not working, little prospect of working. Uh, if your outcome is Iran's paramilitary activity will diminish, in fact, Iran's paramilitary activity seems to be increasing. Uh, you could argue, and there's some ambiguity, not a huge amount of ambiguity, some ambiguity about Iranian responsibility for, uh, for attacks on shipping uh, in the Gulf and nearby. Um, as it's been portrayed to me by a journalist, uh, Iran is hoping that the, the unsustainable economic costs on Iran are matched by unsustainable military costs on the United States, and we'll get toward a negotiation. I still, where I think the president is right, is I think the Iranians are trying to find a way to get into a negotiation, not because uh, they have an interest in completely changing their understanding of foreign policy, their strategy, but because they are terrified of wasting away in the corner while the world ignores them and feels there's no urgency to deal with Iran. So the proximate consequence of sanctions on Iran will be to increase Iranian malign activity, not diminish it. Then the question is, what are the costs then to the United States? What are the costs to the US alliance? What are the costs to, to other economic partners of the Iranians? There was a, uh, an Emirati military delegation reportedly in Iran this week to talk about reducing tensions. We have been talking about creating a multilateral uh, security force in the Gulf. That's gone nowhere. 
it seems to me that if one of the Iranian goals is how do we split up this anti-Iran alliance and keep the United States from leading a broad multilateral coalition and just have a conflict with the United States and try to skirt around it, the Iranian strategy is working pretty well. Um, I, to, to my mind, the consistent oversight in U.S. strategy toward Iran is an understanding of Iranian strategy. And I understand the Iranians lie about what their strategy is. I understand the Iranians say all kinds of things to, to throw up smoke and mirrors and everything else. But if you think about what the world looks like from an Iranian perspective, the Iranians come across as a whole bunch more rational, still hostile, but a whole bunch more rational than I think a lot of American policymakers would like the Iranians to be. This is a hostile, rational power, which has a GDP with all of its oil, 80 million people, a GDP the size of the state of Maryland. So let's right-size the nature of the threat, let's right-size our means, and let's have a strategy to deal with their legitimate security needs and also deal with their illegitimate security desires. Okay. Um, I mean, the administration, so just to continue with you, John, just for one second, the administration um, points out that, that in terms of the cost side of this, that um, it hasn't led what we're doing with Iran. It hasn't uh, created, you know, a, a sort of a spike in oil prices or I'm just getting into dangerous territory here. This is Sarah's domain and they're going to talk about it in the next panel. But, but um, some of the bad effects and the Europeans are unhappy, okay, but that's, you know, that's a cost, but who cares? Um, you know, what are, I, I what are some of the some other... I some of the administrations would think it's a benefit, but that's... Right, that's maybe, even issue. a benefit. So, so what other costs are there here that, you know, how, how do you see the price that we're paying for? I mean, for it's a military cost that we're deploying more troops to the Gulf. Um, I, I had a piece in Defense One in May that argued uh, that China benefits tremendously from increased U.S.-Iran tensions. And if you think that the, the real... U.S. strategic challenges in Asia, this A, draws us away from Asia militarily, and B, breaks apart a multilateral or multinational coalition that would try to consolidate American leadership and consolidate the kind of economic, political, and, and security world that the U.S. has been advancing uh, for more than 75 years. Uh, oil prices are, are low. The Iranians uh, are relatively low. The Iranians have been suffering not just from oil at $65 a barrel, but also uh, the fact that their, their exports have plummeted. And even if you put in smuggling, they're still exporting well under a million barrels a day. Uh, that's much less than half of what they had been doing. Are they suffering? Yes. But first, Iran has a genuine diversified economy. They have an industrial base. They have an agricultural sector. It's not like some of the other states in the region. Uh, and they have been used to sanctions for decades. So it may seem crushing to us, it may seem uh, sort of unsatisfactory, but from an Iranian perspective, this is also about national defense and people are, are, um, are people have not been taking to the streets in the last six months, to my knowledge, to protest the, the government's uh, invitation of American economic uh, constraints and said the, the, the government says we're going to 
resist, then people are resisting. Um, okay, let me ask uh, both Jeff and, and Heather, maybe in that order, about the Russia. Um, sa same questions. I mean, I mean, Putin's still there. He still seems to have the same amount of swagger, but there have been protests in Moscow, and uh, I don't know if that's related to, to any of what we're doing to them, but it may be indirectly. Um, you know, they're, they're maybe having problems in, in Ukraine. They may be having other uh, challenges. Uh, is that because of what, of what we're doing? Are we having any impact um, on, on Putin's uh, behavior or any other metric? Um, and, and again, what price are we paying? And this is really maybe more for Heather about with, with, in our diplomatic relations with, uh, with Europe. Um, and, you know, does that matter seriously, despite my earlier joke? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. On the on the Russian protests, I think these, the proximate cause was um, the refusal of the government to register opposition candidates for local elections in Moscow. And even though the proximate cause may be this single political issue, I think there is an underlying tension that's growing in Russia that has to do with economic stagnation, declining living standards, and sanctions play a role in that. Now, certainly the way that the middle class in Moscow responds to the stagnation of living standards, which has something but not everything to do with sanctions, I think is very different from how people in other parts of the country in the industrial belt in the Far East respond to the same challenges. And Putin has shown in the past, going back to the protests in 2011 when he first announced he was coming back to the presidency, that he doesn't need the Moscow middle class. He doesn't need the middle class in the, in the main cities in the West in order to have a strong political base. Um, and that there's not a huge domestic political cost for cracking down on those forces. Now, his popularity ratings are lower today than they've been um, pretty much at any point since he came back to the presidency. And I think the perception of declining living standards has something to do with that. Now, one of the things that the Kremlin hasn't done, for the most part, so far, is blame sanctions for the decline in living standards. This hasn't really been one of the main talking points. Now, Putin raised it recently during his uh, annual call-in show um, when people were asking him questions about, you know, why has my salary stagnated? He pointed out that we're facing these sanctions. They've cost us $50 billion over the course of, of the last five years. So I think there's starting to be a turn towards trying to blame the West, trying to blame the United States for some of these economic challenges. And this idea of Russia as a besieged fortress, whether in military terms or economic terms, has been a powerful talking point for Putin for a long, long time. And it's something that went away for a little while, and I think we saw it come back after the, the protests and the invasion of Ukraine, and it, it's waned again. But I think what we're starting to see now is a turn back to this kind of anti-Western rhetoric, this um, blaming the West for our problems as a kind of patriotic mobilization strategy. Um, now, whether it'll be successful, whether the, the protests that we've seen break out in Moscow really begin to spread and to cross uh, economic or socioeconomic and, and cultural lines in a way that the protests in 2011 and 2012 did not, um, that remains to be seen. But I think so far, the Kremlin is banking on the fact that it has reasonably done reasonably well in macroeconomic terms, even if growth has slowed, um, and that it has uh, reserves that it can splash around if it needs to, 
and on the ability to mobilize people around this idea that the West is the source of your problems uh, as a means of diffusing the political pressure that, that this is causing. Does that mean it's working, Heather, that in a way? Uh, for, I'm sorry, that it's, it's counterproductive that, that he's actually using this to, uh, to yeah. bolster his, his political position. Well, and then the European question as well. Yeah, no, Jeff's absolutely right. I mean, in the beginning when the U.S. really imposed sanctions on Ukraine, I mean, President Putin was very clear. There said nothing, no impact, and in fact, posed counter sanctions. And, and now that is turning because I think very similar to what John mentioned for Iran, um, it, certainly sanctions have caused challenges. I don't mean to say that. But really, the drop in energy prices, chronic mismanagement, corruption, lack of diversification of the economy has made as much of a contribution to the reduction in living standards as certainly the sanctions has complicated. But you're right, we're now starting to, I think, we'll hear a more anti-Western uh, perspective. But I'll go back again to something that Jeff said in, in his first response. What are they supposed to correct? Uh, or, or how are we prioritizing? I call it the hierarchy of purpose. What are we trying to correct here? Because we have so many sanctions against so many bad acts that the Kremlin has done. What do we want to fix first? What are we trying to accomplish? It gets back to that lack of, of understanding. We're, we're whacking them across the board, but are we trying to produce something? And that's what's absolutely unclear. And the longer this goes on, and I think, again, the cautionary tale here as length of time goes on, and there's not a clear policy framework, it is harder and harder to get allies to understand, okay, what exactly are we trying to accomplish? Uh, and on Russia, historically, we have always had a different perspective vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Europe. This goes back to, I was reading again today, um, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee is uh, reviewing the uh, Escape Act, the Energy Security Act, that looks at possibly uh, putting sanctions on those uh, European companies that are involved in Nord Stream 2, as well as individuals. Um, I mean, you could, put your mind back to 1981, 1982 and the Reagan administration on the friendship pipeline, we were doing the exact same thing. We did not want uh, Russian energy to be uh, Europe. We wanted to punish uh, the Soviet Union for uh, involvement in, in Poland and the crushing the martial law and crushing the solidarity movement or attempting to. So this is very historic. We've always been very muscular uh, with Europe vis-a-vis uh, -vis this effort. But the question is, what are we trying to accomplish? How do we work with our allies to accomplish that? And it's absolutely unclear to me. Now we are, we are increasingly becoming very uneven in consistency with our sanctions policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia uh, and Europe's sanctions. Lots of grandfathering. We have different individuals sanctioned. It does create confusion. I mean, the European Union has held on and rolled over uh, their existing sanctions, which I think we should recognize, although there's lots of workarounds and grandfathers. It's, it's, it's a bit of a, a leaky uh, ship. Uh, but they're not clear where this is driving. What are we trying to accomplish? And it will make maintaining or even enhancing those sanctions uh, that much more uh, difficult. And then I want to pull one uh, question that you, you framed. I know this is tariff apples uh, and sanctions oranges, but we cannot underestimate that while we're trying to work with our allies and partners to develop robust maximum pressure campaigns, sanctions policies, whether that's Russia, Iran, other actors, um, we are also initiating a trade and tariff war with same partners 
whether that's steel and aluminum, potential auto tariffs, uh, right now, you know, digital services tax, wine tax. Uh, we are now, you know, and that does not endear the conditions for us to uh, impose sanctions, which do create self-harm for, for European companies, for US companies and individuals. So we have to, again, hierarchy of purpose. We have to make sure we are focusing on the maximum pressure. Is it Iran today, Venezuela tomorrow, North Korea? It, it, there's such confusion. What are we supposed to do first, and will there be consistency? And that's what's missing in the U.S. approach. Although I must say, in, in the right light, American wine does look better than French wine. So, um, <laughs> so um, seriously, Moises, um, Maduro's still there. Maybe there have been some signs of shakiness, though. I mean, are yeah. we having any impact? Uh, yeah, definitely. Now? I mean, th there are a couple of very strategic and important impact that Sancho has made on Maduro. One is that it's increasing pressure, right? And, and the objective to increase pressure is important because it's kind of the only leverage that the opposition has when it comes to demand anything to Maduro. And that's, that's perhaps sanctions is the only reason that Maduro is seeking any type of dialogue or negotiation with, with opposition. So in that front, is definitely playing an, an important role. And also it's limiting Maduro, it's restricting Maduro to um, steal the natural resources of the Venezuelan people. And this is an issue that has been going for a while and we're talking about billions and billions of dollars being um, stolen in massive corruption, economic mismanagement, money laundering, narco-trafficking. So it's a very important strategic objective. Now, it's, I think it's important to emphasize too that sanction has not caused the economic crisis in Venezuela. Sanctions have not caused the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela either. And just to give you an example, in 2016, um, the Bolivar, the, current, the, Boli the Venezuelan currency hit 200% uh, of inflation already. One year before any sectorial sanctions hit the country, uh, the same year we had food amazing shortage, we have Mass uh, migrants and refugees fleeing. The numbers today are, of course, much higher. But even one year before the sanctions hit, um, the, the economic and humanitarian picture in Venezuela was already very bad. That being said, um, I, I think uh, the, the oil sanctions are limiting no? the, the Maduro regime to import any, any, any commodities, any, any food, any medicine. Um, is the solution to give Maduro access to financial services and oil revenues again? I, I don't think so, and, and I think there are three main reasons for that. W one is that, um, I mean, given the regime history, um, they, they haven't provided food or medicine to the Venezuelan people for, for a good time now. And, and, and the purpose of sanctions is to kind of shorten the lifetime of Maduro in power so we can shorten the, lifetime, the, the time for the Venezuelan people to restore their democracy and stop their suffering. Uh, so that's a very important reason. The second reason is that we do not recognize Maduro, or 54 countries do not, do not recognize Maduro as a legitimate government anymore. So in a way, if we give Maduro access again to all these state-owned um, revenues, um, we were against our own policies. So in a way, we need to think creatively how to redirect those resources to the new legitimate government led by Juan Guaido. And then thirdly, yes, if we want to aim to limit the suffering and tackle the humanitarian crisis, we need, we're forced to think creatively and seek alternative. The first program that comes to mind is this oil for food program. And I'm sure people in the room have different um, expectations and different uh, opinions on it. 
but, uh, but in a way we need to think of how can we redirect Venezuelan natural resources to limit the suffering by providing uh, humanitarian aid directly to the Venezuelan people. So in a way we're forced to think that direction instead of coming, going back to giving access to Maduro again to all these very rich natural resources. Yeah. Just, just, uh, Moises' description of Venezuela reminds me that compared to Iran, creating the collapse of an oppressive government is infinitely easier in Venezuela than it is in Iran. I mean, the government is much weaker, the economy is much weaker, their the, the neighborhood is much more supportive of a governmental change. I mean, if you sort of look across the spectrum, Venezuela is like a gimme putt. It should be really easy and it's proving really hard. And the idea that we're gonna be able to collapse the government of Iran through our sanctions because we want to, because we think they're nasty and we think what will come later will be better, I think is, is, it's far harder to collapse the government at all, let alone get a better outcome at the end than Venezuela. And Venezuela, easy as it seems it should be, is really hard. Why do we think Iran is going to be easy? Okay, um, I want to bring the audience in, so I'm just going to do one more quick lightning round. Um, uh, if you were God, or at least president, um, what, um, what would you do differently? I mean, you've all been critical in one way or another of the current approach. However, you define the objective of what we're trying to achieve in our foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis your country or region. Um, you know, what would you do different? How would sanctions potentially be part of that solution in some way? And how would you modify those or target them? Maybe Moises coming back down the line. Sure. So. Um, yeah, I mentioned earlier the multilateral approach. I think the more the U.S. engages its partners in the region and in the world, especially in the European Union, to also sanction uh, Venezuela, especially, especially individual sanctions, right? We have very clearly who are stealing the money from the Venezuelan people. Uh, who, we know who they are. It's very public known. And so I, I think the Lima Group hasn't come along with sanctions, and I think they should. And the European Union also, and, they, uh, and again, it's all part of the U.S. foreign policy more broadly. So we should be working with the partners and, and to to this end. There's a couple of more things that they, the U.S. should probably be thinking on. Targeting family members of the Maduro regime is important. Um, I mean, in a way, the 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 official, the government officials under Maduro. Yes, they're involved on, on, on stealing those assets, but they usually use their families members to enjoy, uh, to travel, and to, to, um, to, to, as part of this criminal enterprise in Venezuela. So targeting, targeting those family members is also very important. Um, and, and, and I think, I mean, uh, again, uh, the, the, the sanction policy is only a tool, as we have been discussed. The, the more we engage Venezuela in a more comprehensive, more broad way is, is very important. Sanctions are not going to solve the problem in Venezuela, but it's, very important, it's a very important tool to increase pressure and to get Maduro, to convince Maduro for, for some exit route so, so we can stop the, the suffering of the people there. Yeah. Okay, thanks, John. Um, in the Middle East, has had a number of regimes that have been sanctioned, not only the Iranians, the Iraqis, the Libyans, others. I think generally, unity and focus of effort, the broader the international coalition, the more directed it is toward a, a specific outcome, so people on the, the target government can make a clear decision, that helps. Finally, sometimes it doesn't work. Right? We tried to do it with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein played a game with sanctions. And I think one of the things that we have to appreciate 
is the extent to which governments do adapt to sanctions, and it is like immunizations, it is like uh, antibiotics. If you do it, you keep doing it little bit, little bit, little bit, people develop workarounds and, and immunities, and I think we are in danger of getting into that space, and I think the Chinese will chuckle as we get into that space. That whole subject matter that I wanted to talk about as well as others taking advantage of all this, but, but, but we won't have time, I think, unless a question comes uh, on that point. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, I would say that we need to be really clear about what the ultimate aim of our sanctions policy is. And when I say we, um, I think it also helps, it would be extremely important in terms of dealing with Russia to have unity both in the transatlantic space and within Washington. And that's been lacking very, very badly. Heather mentioned the, the transatlantic piece of this already, but especially as the U.S. starts proposing new rounds of sanctions targeting energy, things like Nord Stream 2, what we're seeing is an increasing decoupling, not only of the specific sanctions packages, but even of the basic objectives of US sanctions policy from EU sanctions policy. And Russia is seeking to arbitrage those differences. It's seeking to peel away individual members of the EU. Um, and this is contributing to a weakening of, of transatlantic unity that has larger implications that go beyond just sanctions and go beyond the US-Russia relationship. We haven't talked much about the US domestic politics of sanctions, but especially on Russia, this is a big problem as well. Um, because right now you have the Congress that's driving the car um, when it comes to thinking about where sanctions need to go. And in part, that's because there's bipartisan mistrust on the Hill uh, of the administration's relationship with Moscow. Uh, and there's been a willingness to push for uh, sanctions packages that leave the, this administration or any future administration very little, very little wiggle room when it comes to determining when and under what circumstances to apply sanctions. And so this approach really does risk becoming the new normal, one that's going to be part of the way that the United States engages with Russia, even under a future administration, even when the basic landscape has changed. As we saw when the US imposed the Jackson-Vanek sanctions back in the 1970s on the Soviet Union, once Congress gets involved, it's very hard to unwind that kind of congressional action. Jackson-Vanek lasted after, long after the Soviet Union was gone. Um, and it was a, a long-standing issue in, in U.S.-Russian relations, and I think we're risking having a similar problem with uh, the approach to sanctions that we're taking right now. Again, did want to get into that question of unwinding and the challenges there, but we won't have time, but no, Heather. No, I mean, clear, prioritized policy for ourselves within the U.S. government, a whole of government, Congress, the administration that we all understand, um, but it, and what the policy is, but what it isn't. We can't get everything we want. We have to prioritize. I would sort of radical, provocative thought. Our policy on sanctions is the slow ramp up. You know, it's that turning the dial and getting it. It creates, in some ways, the conditions where now adversaries have the workarounds. So maybe we should think about fast and devastating to start getting the attention, getting them to the table. I mean, this is a, a radical approach. We'd have to be prepared for that. But it's an idea, rather than the slow burn, maybe if it's this important, really to focus that uh, very quickly. And then finally, it, it is we have to start talking, as we are thinking about sanctions, the consequences. 
So the consequences of a devastating sanctions regime vis-a-vis -vis Russia is that Russia now seeking Beijing as an alternative financing mechanism, technology transfer mechanism. Um, we're seeing where uh, you know Turkey is increasingly looking towards Russia and others. We are now starting to look at, at a very new strategic picture and sanctions policies is contributing to it. It's not completely, but it is contributing to it. We have to develop the second, third, fourth movement on the chessboard here. Uh, and what we're doing is doing the quick, easy, we're going to do something, I feel better about myself, but we're really changing the strategic picture, and we have to really recognize that as part of this conversation. Unintended consequences. Okay, uh, great um, start. Uh, there, there's more to be discussed, and I already see a bunch of hands. If you have a question, please uh, wait for the microphone, identify yourself, and ask a question. There's a woman there to the far stage left, and then a gentleman in the far back. I'm going to take three, and then I'll take this gentleman right in the front row. Thank you, Mira Eaton. Um, um, my question is um, about the EU blocking statue, how that has been um, has affected at all, if at all, uh, American um, uh, assets in Europe dealing with Iran. And then uh, I think you all alluded to it that are Russian sanctions actually working given that we have these long um, downsizing um, periods um, with such entities such as Gazprom and, um, and how that's all uh, being played out? Okay, did you understand? I did. Just, yeah. Was it the special purpose vehicle? Yeah, I think it was the special purpose it's, vehicle. Is that what you were asking about? The yeah, beginning? the EU blocking statue with the special purpose vehicle. Yeah, yes. perfect. Mm -hmm. okay, I just want to make sure I got it. Thank you. Go ahead. Oh, oh we're going to take yeah. it one at a time. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. sorry. You're right. I said I'd take three. Let's do it that I'm way because we don't have much time. Gentleman back there. Got it. Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Jacob Atem. Um, I'm one of the Lost Boys of Sudan uh, back in the day, so I'm going to play double advocate here as a victim. And also, um, uh, a medical um, background with public health. So I'm a coordinator for uh, Med Global, which we provide health services to the refugees, IDPs. So for me, the the problem is, you go with a small fish. You always sanction the little general somewhere. And that general has no impact. That general will never come to the US or somewhere. So what happened? Why don't you go for the big fish? Which cause a person like me, who grew up in a refugee camp, and you always go for the little guy, and you leave the big fish. Why is that? And as you, I'm picking back from what uh, Madam said he, earlier, it was a slow start, but as a victim, we don't need slow start. We need the quick action now so that IDPs could go back, refugees could go back. So why is it so slow? Okay, good question. And this gentleman. Hi, uh, thank you, Piotr from um, the to be in Little England. Um, <laughs> but um, Global basically, Global England. Uh, well, yes, that's Global the intention. Um, Britain, right. But yeah, my question: I oh, was um, I was taught by Adam Susbin uh, last year, who was the uh, predecessor to the uh, Under Secretary, and I, I came away understanding that sanctions are about. 
behavioural change. However, when I was at the managing golf discussion at the Atlantic Council yesterday, all we're talking about is how the escalation in the golf is just worsening. Um, and sanctions, they do work, as is the case with the apartheid, but in the case of Iran, it's just completely regressing, and the reimposition of certain broad sanctions is completely, for me, counterproductive at this stage. Um, and generally, so what should the United States do to encourage other, others to engage with sanctions? Because it seems to be a very unilateral device. Uh, and equally, just another sub-question, if sanctions are to be part of a great toolbox, do we not need a greater US grand strategy for the 21st century? Thank you. Okay. Uh, we won't have time to lay out the grand strategy, but we can maybe uh, make a first cut at that. So do you want to do the SPV one first? And then if you want to address the others, yeah. like the good question about big fish, small fish, and yeah. moving quickly, yeah. um, or, or about, um, uh, or about uh, you know, grand strategy. Sure. And, um, well, well very briefly on, on the, uh, the SPV, I mean, the fact that it was uh, a very clear attempt to build a second track from U.S. policy. It's, the vehicle itself, I think, it, it is not a robust tool, but it was the fact that it was created. Uh, and now that it's created, even now the U.S. is trying to uh, end its creation and I, I, in INSTEX. Uh, and the, the question that even Russia is thinking, well, maybe I'll join that SPV. Now, that is uh, INSTEX. It's absolutely to divide the U.S. from its allies. But we should not let our adversaries, or we should be helping our own policy with that division. We need to get back to a place where our allies are, are supporting the U.S. policy vision. But they have to know the U.S. policy vision. And this, again, more in John's department. Um, we have now asked our European allies to help us with the uh, convoys and prote maritime protection in the Straits of Hormuz. They don't, they're, they're so concerned about joining it because they don't know what they're joining. Is this a military campaign? And Is this regime change? And them. we won't protect them. So there, there's so much confusion. But this separation can be used by adversaries to enhance that separation. So it is, it is a worrisome um, sign. And I'll just make a, maybe loop that into the grand strategy question. Again, this gets back to we, the United States has to articulate its policy desires um, and be very clear uh, with ourselves what we're trying to accomplish and then be very clear with our allies how their help and support will accomplish that. Um, but we have not done that in a very long time, and that's a bipartisan comment. It is easy to react and be able to sanction something to do something. That's good. That's reactive. But that's not saying, how do we want this region to be? What are we willing to sacrifice either our, our, our uh, men and women in uniform, our economic prosperity, some things we have to sacrifice for greater principles. Have we prepared the American people for that? Are they prepared to support that? Are our allies prepared to support that vision? And we just haven't done that, that work, uh, unfortunately. And it's, a lot of that's coming home to roost, whether that's in the Middle East, the Indo-Pacific, or Europe, or even Latin America. Great, okay, Jeff? Any okay. or all of the questions? Yeah, let me ask, let me take a stab at the question about big fish, because I think it, it, it's really important. Mm -hmm. We have tried to do this on different occasions with regard to Russia. Um, the most notable was when sanctions were imposed on Oleg Deripaska, who's one of the major oligarchs who controls the, the world's largest aluminum company and is uh, very much in Putin's inner circle. Um, that effort was walked back uh, because of the unanticipated consequences that 
cutting off the world's largest aluminum producer from global finance had on aluminum markets. Um, so I think one of the challenges when it comes to going after the big fish is that a lot of these big fish are globally integrated and targeting them has second and third order consequences that we may not be prepared to deal with and that our allies may not be prepared to deal with. Um, and that's when you're talking about economic actors, when you talk about going after political actors, heads of state, that kind of thing, of course, the, the second and third order effects can be even worse. Um, but I'm, very, I'm sympathetic to the, to the point. On U.S. grant strategy, the only thing I would add is that we have to think about what targeted countries and targeted individuals are going to do in response. They're not passive recipients of U.S. action. They have a vote. And as we've seen uh, with the turn, with the Russian turn towards China, um, as we've seen with the Europeans' adoption of, of blocking sanctions, countries that feel their interests are being negatively affected by U.S. sanctions policy are going to do things in response. Now, some of these may be directly focused on sanctions and responding to them. Some of them may be completely outside the economic space. Um, they may involve kinetic or other kinds of escalation. And I think we have to have a better understanding of what those steps might be, um, under what circumstances they might be taken, and what the implications for our own interests might be. Okay, thanks, John. Um, but and yet, so the other piece of that is what our allies will do in response to our vigorous <laughs> sanctions policy. The fact is, our, our vigorous sanctions policy is largely complied with by partners around the world. I think Americans sort of, on the one hand, are very proud of, of U.S. power and influence. On the other hand, don't understand the U.S. operates at a scale that is unlike any other country in the world. <clears throat> uh, when the U.S. imposes secondary sanctions, as it's done on Iran, it severely inhibits anybody's willingness to do business with Iran. Uh, Brian Hook, the, the Iran envoy, is very fond of saying that Instex is a supply for which there is no demand because European companies don't want to cross the United States. But it seems to me as well that there's, there's a cost among partners when they feel the U.S. is acting in a high-handed manner, when they feel that the U.S. is asking to take risks without protecting from the consequences of the risks, as I think we're seeing uh, in the Gulf, when people feel U.S. policy is either wrong-headed or reckless or something else, then, then on the one hand, they try to create alternative policies, to try to hedge against U.S. action, they, they act in different ways. I don't think we've thought through how those things work. Um, there is certainly a problem of freeloading among partners and allies. I think we've seen a lot of that. But there's no obvious solution to it, and it seems to me that simply pulling back means you lose partnership, and you lose partners. I, I find, as I travel, that, that people really do want U.S. leadership because when the U.S. government is functioning well, our ability for unity of effort across the spectrum of government action, our ability to generate strategies, to give everybody a role, to have things move, we can move the international community like no other country in the world. No other country. And in many ways, we're foregoing that. And that has consequences. Uh, we do need to rethink how we think about leadership. It, we're no longer the leaders of the free world in the absence of a, an iron curtain and all those things. 
I don't think we've quite thought it through, but it seems to me that, that we do have a choice about how we lead and what the nature of American leadership is and how we work with partners and allies. And it feels to me like we, we need to have a much more thoughtful discussion. It's not binary. It's not you're leading, you're not leading. But it feels to me like we're, we're not considering the second and third order consequences of different approaches. Sanctions are part of this, which people in the headlines will basically comply with. But beneath the headlines, we'll work to isolate, hedge, find other alternatives to American leadership, and that will have consequences for decades to come. Great, thanks. Moises? Yeah, uh, briefly, just going back to the big fish question, uh, on Venezuela, we do have sanctioned most, if not all, big fishes, including uh, Maduro himself. In fact, Maduro is one of the four presidents in the world that has been sanctioned, besides Bashar al-Assad and Kim Jong-un, and Mugabe, former President Mugabe in Zimbabwe. So it's, it's a symbolic way, and, and we do have sanctioned most of the generals, most vice president, foreign ministers. Uh, so in a way, we do have sanction. However, um, as, as Jeff mentioned, John as well, and all of my colleagues, is that uh, this is a more globally integrated criminal enterprise, and, and they always find a way to circumvent those sanctions and use their family members and use other, other countries, including in Europe, in, in um, Hong Kong, in, in, in Latin America, and in the US to, to, um, you know, to, to keep doing corruption and money laundering. So it's, it's a global issue more than a, a domestic Venezuelan, Latin American issue. And lastly, yes, uh, I mean, the, the quick result, the, the, the quick action and quick result issue is an is a, is a issue in Venezuela because everyone wants to stop the suffering of the Venezuelan people. But uh, unfortunately, the sanctions that just came into play in Venezuela have a short life period. And, 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 and the, the effects really take a little bit more of time in a way to restrict Maduro to, to maneuver uh, with the natural resources of the country. So it, it's gonna take more time, that's what I wanna say. But, yeah. Excellent, okay. Um, I think we've set the table well. Um, we, we have no more time to do the main course, but I think <laughs> after the break, and there is a break, no, there is no break. Okay, I didn't get my instructions right. Um, we're going to move straight into the next panel, and they're going to get into some of the meat, uh, the meat and potatoes, and the energy uh, space in particular. So if you would, uh, for now, join me in uh, thanking these great panelists for their presentation. Thank you. And stay where you are. Stay where you are. We're just shifting people. Thank you so much. How are things? I don't know. Things the Red Cross are going. They're busy, I'm sure. I, I don't know. Jan, uh, Jan left a couple of years after you did. Oh, okay. And then she worked for Care, and oh, now we're uh, doing all sorts of stuff. So. Anyway, nicely so done. Glad. Very well Thank done. You. You're the only one that. To a bit more of the specificity, I think we've had the benefit of hearing the official sector perspective from Undersecretary Under Mandelkar. Um, we have heard various perspectives based on the regions that we're talking about as far as the effectiveness <coughs> of sanctions in achieving certain foreign policy objectives. This panel is very much focused on sanctions and the energy sector. Um, so let me do some brief introductions and then turn it over to the experts here. I have immediately to my left, Peter Flanagan is a partner at Covington and Burling where he counsels clients on a broad range of compliance. Uh, requirements affecting international trade and investment, including, of course, sanctions. Uh, next to Peter, we have Kevin Book, who is Managing Director 
at Clearview Energy Partners, where he heads the research team covering oil, gas, and coal policy. Kevin is also a senior associate with CSIS's National Energy, excuse me, Energy and National Security Program. And then you've met Sarah already. Sarah is CSIS Senior Vice President and also Director of the Energy and National Security Program, where she leads the center's work in energy policy, market, and technology analysis. Um, so here we have the expertise to focus explicitly on sanctions and the energy sector. And what I'd like to do is start with Peter, who was kind enough, I think, to provide some visual aids to really, <laughs> I think it both illustrates and will help us better understand the complexity of the sanctions issue. Um, but Peter, as you walk through the slides that I hope will sure. appear here, yeah. it would be helpful to kind of understand the legal underpinnings uh -huh. for the various sanctions regimes and any distinctions you want to pull out uh, based on the countries that we're talking yeah. about or based on things like primary versus secondary sanctions. I think that would be sure. a helpful introduction. Sure, thanks. It's been a, I think it's been a terrific discussion so far. Uh, Under Secretary Mandelker, I think, um, gave us a vision of where the administration's going she, and cited the, the many tools, the many ways in which sanctions are implemented. And for those of us who think about sanctions every day, it has become incredibly complex. We have you know, networks of primary sanctions, secondary sanctions, comprehensive sanctions, sectoral sanctions. Um, and these are implemented under statutes uh, where Congress uh, has gotten into the act, uh, as the last panel discussed, through executive orders, through implementing regulation, policy statements, FAQ guidance. It's, um, it's quite a lot for energy companies to try to navigate. Uh, as they run their day-to-day -day business, these are strict and important prohibitions that they need to understand and to, to implement uh, in, in their business activities. And, and there are multiple agencies uh, involved. Uh, we've talked about the Treasury Department, but obviously the State Department has important authorities um, for purposes of secondary sanctions. And the Commerce Department has complementary uh, controls with respect to movements of US origin goods and technology. So there are multiple agencies, multiple authorities. Uh, and what I thought I might do just briefly as we think about the landscape for international energy companies is to tick through the, the same three programs that the last panel did such a nice job um, of discussing and to highlight um, the, the kinds of sanctions that um, companies need to deal with. First, first with respect to Iran, uh, and then Russia, and then, and then Venezuela briefly. And what I wanted to flag is just this, this differentiation between primary sanctions and secondary sanctions. Uh, because uh, what we have seen in this administration, I think more so than any uh, of the, the period in the 25 years that I've been working on sanctions, is the use, the affirmative use of secondary sanctions as a tool. Uh, primary sanctions, the prohibitions on, on U.S. persons and U.S. companies, and anybody who's dealing in U.S. goods and technology, those are pretty well known and pretty um, identifiable as to what's, what the do's and the don'ts are. When you get into secondary sanctions, companies don't violate secondary sanctions, but they put at risk their ability to do business in U.S. markets if they act in ways that are inconsistent with U.S. policy. They don't require a U.S. nexus to run afoul uh, of secondary sanctions. In, in the case of Iran, the secondary sanctions that have been snapped back since the U.S. left the JCPOA have been most significant for international energy markets. And they really do affect the full sweep of the, the energy sector activities. So with respect to Iran, 
Um, there are both mandatory, quote unquote, secondary sanctions pursuant to statute and also discretionary secondary sanctions that the administration can choose to implement. When companies, non-US companies are involved in upstream investments in Iran's energy sector or providing any kind of support for the uh, production of petroleum resources in Iran, but then it ticks through the, the full range of the supply chain. So the purchase and acquisition of petroleum products or petrochemical products. Uh, transporting Iranian crude, which has been a real focus uh, of recent uh, action by the administration. Dealing with Iran's port operators, the shipping and shipbuilding sectors, and also dealing with parties that the U.S. has put on the, the blacklist, the, the Treasury Department's SDN list, uh, for violating various aspects of the sanctions. Just that act alone can trigger exposure to secondary sanctions. So it's, it's quite a, a, a sweep of, of secondary sanctions authorities, all of which are, are backed up by measures targeting international financial institutions, which really are the first line of defense and the means by which the administration, I think, is able to bring muscle to the implementation of, of secondary sanctions. So um, switching to Russia, I think Jeff did a really nice job in the last panel of highlighting some of the, the tools that are being used. And here, again, there are both primary and secondary sanctions that energy companies have to navigate. And the primary sanctions operate really at, at three levels. Uh, the most comprehensive primary sanctions, uh, those that affect U.S. persons and, and U.S. companies, U.S. energy companies, target dealings with um, Russian SDNs and also uh, Crimea, which is effectively subject to a full embargo. The, the second layer of primary sanctions are the sectoral sanctions that OFAC administers. And these are the measures that are really targeted at um, unconventional oil and gas activities in Russia or projects around the world where Russia has a substantial interest. So Arctic offshore, deep water, and shale. These are the projects that have been targeted by sectoral sanctions. And also, as the last panel noted, the extension of credit to um, Russian uh, energy companies. And third, uh, we have export controls that uh, reinforce sectoral sanctions by restricting the flow of US origin goods and technology to certain companies and certain kinds of energy projects. So it's a, it's a very targeted, uh, nuanced set of controls uh, at the unconventional oil and gas um, sector. The secondary sanctions are mostly an outgrowth of CATSA, um, uh, adopted you know, the fall after uh, President Trump was elected. And these have a broad sweep. Um, they target significant investments in special Russian crude oil projects, the development of energy export pipelines, and here it's really Nord Stream 2 was the, the main target. And early on, the administration, we could, can talk about this, expressed uh, a willingness to work with allies, but they're, I think, are stepping back somewhat. Kevin probably get into this, stepping back from an, an earlier articulation of how they might exercise their secondary sanctions authorities. And third, um, our significant transactions with uh, the Russian um, defense and intelligence sector. So there's a broad authority uh, in the, with respect to secondary sanctions that um, energy companies have to navigate. And finally, with respect to Venezuela, Moises did, a, I think, a great job in his introductory remarks to, to summarize the, the toolbox. But, but here, too, we have a mix of comprehensive, sectoral, and secondary sanctions. The most comprehensive sanctions target PDVSA, uh, pursuant to uh, executive order, uh, and also officials in the Maduro government, as, as Moises uh, explained. But that list has been growing to reach state-owned banks, shipping companies. These are really full-scale prohibitions. 
The, the sectoral sanctions, which are not comprehensive, but reach uh, debt and equity measures, really target the rest of the government of Venezuela to make it difficult, as Moises explained, for the Venezuelan government to raise um, credit in international markets. Um, the, as Undersecretary Mandelker indicated, the government has the ability to authorize activities through general licenses, and in Venezuela, uh, this has been a, a real tool. Um, the, the, uh, the general licenses that have authorized dealings with CITCO uh, in the United States, NINAS uh, in Europe, the general license that was just recently extended for, for three more months to authorize Chevron and, and a number of other U.S. companies to support um, assets in Venezuela looking forward to a day when perhaps a new government is going to inherit those oil and gas assets. Um, trying to, to manage those authorities and think about um, sanctions tools as supporting uh, a transition in government. The area that's been, I think, most complicated for energy companies is to think about how these secondary sanctions might be utilized um, with, in, in under Venezuela uh, sanctions, because there have been some targeted use of the secondary sanctions authorities pursuant to executive order to um, block the assets of companies that have been supporting the trade between Venezuela and Cuba, most notably PB Tankers of Italy, which found itself on the SDN list until just, just recently. Um, but a number of other international companies have long-standing projects in, in Venezuela, um, dealings with PDVSA that are at risk of potentially being targeted if the administration decides to, to ratchet up uh, secondary sanctions. So this is an area of real uncertainty and um, risk for international energy companies as they think about how they chart their course in, the, in these various programs. Great introduction. Um, actually leads to a, a whole lot of second and third round questions that I want to come back to. Um, before we do that, Kevin, I'd like to turn to you and, and maybe have you frame this in the context of overall energy sector developments, kind of global energy sector developments and how we should think of sanctions in light of what's happening globally in, in energy markets. Sure, Stephanie, and thank you. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Thank you, CSIS, for having me. What a great couple of panels we had. Uh, we, we got from uh, the, the Treasury Department mention of a toolkit, and from Peter, we've actually seen the toolkits, and now you can inspect it. Uh, I think I'll maybe talk a little bit about how the tools are used uh, and where it meets sort of the interesting part of the, the, the discussion for energy people which is how many barrels come off the market? What does it do to price? Where's the, where's the change in investment expectations? Well, let me start first with the, the context. Um, the Russia toolkit that Peter just described uh, was essentially created after the Ukraine incursion. And it was created at a time of high prices, a real oil price in today's dollars of more than $100 a barrel, $115, $120 a barrel. And so it targeted future oil. Uh, when we look at the Venezuela and Iran actions that were taken, those actions were taken at a time of considerably lower crude prices. That gives more latitude when you consider that the targets of these sanctions are producer nations, producer nations of size, right? Venezuela, Iran, and Russia. An unthinkable thing to be targeting all three producer nations with sanctions at $100 a barrel, but not only thinkable, happening today. The second thing I would say about that, and it's important, is that even if they don't sound like oil sanctions necessarily, I mean, this stuff is extraordinarily complicated to the practitioner. To the layperson, I think it can be very intimidating. Primary, secondary, sectoral, what? Uh, the question is, what is it 
do to the investment in oil and gas? What does it do to supply? What does it do to the buyers of that oil and gas? What does it do to demand? And when you get right down to it, financial sanctions can be energy sanctions very easily because it takes money to get resources, conventional resources or renewable resources, installed or, or produced or out of the ground. So limit a country, a producer country that owns its producers' access to capital, to credit, uh, and you will have an effect on at least the allocation resources within the country, if not a direct impact on production. Now with regard to the, to the Iran and Venezuela sanctions, the Iran sanctions mechanism that, that Peter described and that we heard so much about already is really about acting on, on the demand side, acting on the actors who purchase oil from Iran. We haven't been purchasing oil from Iran for decades, so that's not the issue, nor oil products, nor much of anything else. But that mechanism is, is pretty effective. If you look at where Iran's exports were a little over a year ago, at two and a half million barrels per day, it depends on whose numbers you're going to use. There's a lot of uncertainty given the number of ships that are traveling without AIS signatures on the open waters and ship-to-ship -ship transfers that are happening under cover of night. One aspect of sanctions is that the increased use of sanctions, as, as uh, Secretary Mandelker pointed out, uh, produces an increased use of countermeasures by those who wish to avoid sanctions. But be it as it may, you're looking at something like an 85% reduction in total volumes, thereabouts, uh, of total export volumes for Iran. Uh, for Venezuela, the mechanism is really both on the demand side. The U.S. was a big buyer of heavy oil, uh, but also somewhat on the supply side, the investment that could go into the ground so that PDVSA could produce. And these things are distinct and different. They're market-specific, they're circumstances-specific, and in many cases, they're entity-specific, given the, the interests of U.S. or allied countries' companies that are going to be operating in concert with each of these producer nations. Now, as we're sitting here right now, it turns out this is not just a well-timed discussion. It is an incredibly well-timed <laughs> discussion because the Protecting Europe's Energy Security Act is, a, last I checked my, 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 my iPhone before I came up here, is being voted on by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee right now. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting measure because it, it's one of four pending sanctions bills targeting Russia. You think of sort of the, the Venezuela picture is about halfway full. Uh, there's still a few more things that could be done, as Peter mentioned, with secondary sanctions authority. And Iran has ramped up to the max. Russia is still, hmm. because of that lease that was given on sort of the, the future oil being targeted, not the present oil, uh, it, there's still a lot of things to be targeted. But the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the purpose of, of the, the PISA, the Protecting Europe's Energy Security Act, and the Turk Stream pipeline are the things being discussed right now. And the, this is complicated because, like Katza, the countering America's adversaries through Sanctions Act of 2017, uh, the secondary nature of the sanctions contemplated could impact European companies. And there's many questions about whether the Russian sanctions regime that will be brought to bear will affect the investors, affect OMV and Shell uh, and other companies that are financing the construction of the pipeline. But it's only one of four packages that are pending. There's another one called ESCAPE. Don't ask me to spell out all of the acronyms. They're very creative, though. I give compliments <laughs> to those who didn't. But ESCAPE is essentially another pipeline targeting bill that also liberalizes U.S. LNG exports. And the substitution quid pro quo is pretty straightforward. There are two broader reaching measures, though. One that would essentially plow through that 33% safe harbor in Directive 4 that Peter mm -hmm. mentioned, which uh, DASCA, uh, defending uh, uh, against uh, Kremlin, no, I can't do it. <laughs> it's, but 
and there's another one called deter. 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 Uh, and uh, those two are much more broad-reaching. They could affect not just the oil and gas infrastructure projects, but the producing projects. So uh, essentially, not just the midstream, but also the upstream, and the ability of U.S. oil companies, not just European gas consumers, uh, to, to interact with Russia. So uh, we're at the threshold of all that right now. By the time this panel is done, uh, that bill will have moved or not, and we'll have more to say about it. But I'll stop there with, with, with again, just, just a reminder that this, this is context sensitive. Price matters. And there's mechanisms that are used in different places in different ways based on circumstances. And not to be overlooked, money goes into the ground so that oil can come out. So sanctions on money are energy sanctions when you're sanctioning producer nations. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I will say I agree with you on the timely comment, but given kind of the pace of activity over the last few years, we had pretty good odds of being <laughs> particularly timely on, on this topic. Um, Sarah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you kind of a similar question to Kevin because you know sanctions is part of what you look about, but you really are thinking about kind of energy sector more broadly and obviously kind of the strategic implications of energy sector developments. So could you talk to how you see sanctions impacting energy markets and even maybe a strategic view on energy markets in light of sanctions activity. Sure, yeah, no, and thanks very much. Uh, I'm always really super happy. Peter does an amazing job of going over an exceedingly complex issue very quickly. It looked like a photo shoot out here looking at your slides. So uh, people people are really happy to absorb that. I mean, I think Kevin did an excellent job of, uh, of talking about the way in which the current sanctions regimes are affecting behavior. I think as you point out, you know, the first time that we wrote on this topic in particular was back in, I think, 2011. Um, and it was pretty evident that we had sort of an emerging sanctions regime on Iran and that it was, a lot of it was being done in the context of the idea that the U.S. was now sort of an energy, emerging energy superpower because of our oil and gas production, right? And, and, that's, and I think that that attitude has sort of certainly pervaded the way in which we think about sanctions that affect the oil markets in particular, but also sort of this intersection on gas as well. So the U.S. is now in a period of time that I think is much shorter than I would have appreciated it being possible, morphed into this position of thinking about its own energy resources as a tool of both economic engagement and economic coercion differently than we have in the past. Now, I won't say that we never did any of that. That would be sort of a naive reading of the way in which energy and geopolitics intersect with each other. But I will say there's a cautionary tale here, which is there is an, a degree to which, as we start to think about, you know, the, that we have sanctions on, quite frankly, the, the, the only thing in common, well, there's probably lots of things in common, but uh, between Russia and Iran and Venezuela, they happen to be large hydrocarbon, you know, resource-rich nations that sell into the global economy or have over a period of time. As we sort of take them off the table for future investment, as we sort of think about that, the fact that right now the measure of our ability to enact sanctions on those countries that affect the energy sector is whether or not it moves the oil market, that is a lousy proxy for energy security. Oil prices are a lousy proxy for energy security, just like GDP is a lousy proxy for how we're doing as an economy, by the way, but that's a different conference. So I think we've got to be very careful because the, a lot of this is being done in the context of, well, the sanctions are part of a broader 
foreign policy objective under which we're taking some action. And once that's done, they'll be gone. Now, in the last Iran round, that was true, right? That was true. But there are cautionary tales there as well, because once they were gone, investment was encouraged by the energy sector to go back in, and then that was punished. Right? So, so we have to be, and, and it is not to say that that was, I'm not being normative about that decision, I'm, being, I'm making an observation that we tend to do this. It was not different in the situation with Venezuela. In the situation with Venezuela, we were talking about Venezuelan sanctions, there was this overly exuberant, the Venezuelan regime is going to fall, and the U.S. energy industry, along with others, are going to go back in and rehabilitate the country. Okay, until when? until we don't like the behavior again. So I think we have to really, I, I was really pleased to, to hear uh, Under Secretary Mandelkar talk about cooperation and collaboration with the private sector in addition to thinking about alliances as well. Because I do think it is a, it is a vastly different oil market. It's a vastly different energy market out there when we think about how US companies are involved, how US financial institutions are involved. It, they are not necessarily, they work very hard to try not to be involved with criminal elements, and I think we've got to give a lot of credit to what the Treasury Department is doing in, in, uh, in, in terms of going after corrupt activities and criminal networks. There's an, an extremely important reason why we need to preserve the utility of these tools, that is for sure. It's in these other ways that it rubs up against sort of activity that nobody wants to punish the activity in and of itself, but it's seen as being part of a broader foreign policy objective. And this is the place in which I think um, uh, you start to sort of see the longer term concerns of the energy sector being reflected in. Um, one, is ambiguity uh, in, in sort of sanctions, is that going to be a constant feature, right? We've seen in the past when certain uh, 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 designations or certain um, sort of rules, particularly in Russia on the unconventionals and things. There's a lot of things that aren't explained and then subsequently explained. There's a lot of questions in the industry about whether that is something that happens, that, that is a learning curve process versus something that's done to make compliance a little bit broader than it might otherwise been if they were specific. So I, I actually, you know, watching this from sort of the energy sector perspective, I think that there is a, a real need to think about not only the way in which specific sanctions affect investments in the energy sector in specific cases, but more broadly, as we start to think about some of the things that, you know, Kevin was talking about on the trade front and we talked about on the other panels as well, how we think about energy as a tool of influence as a part of US foreign policy, as a part of how we deal with other countries. I think that's a, the broader evolving trend here that is about sanctions, but it's about much more than that. And I would say, as we think about, it's not just, hey, can other countries come up with tools to circumvent the sanctions? Are we seeing transactions happen in non-dollar denominator terms? Sure. Are we seeing you know, people uh, choose strategic partnerships for projects or build capabilities to get around some of these things? Sure. It's really, do we want energy to be included in this sort of coercive economic measures realm and how much? How much do we want that to happen? And we are doing this from a period of strength right now. Um, should the U.S. energy uh, uh, production situation change, I would say, quite frankly, we're still deeply integrated in global oil markets, so we need to be quite humble about that. Um, 
if all of a sudden our own vulnerabilities were on the table, would we, would we look at this differently? And what are we doing to sort of think about the future of energy security in that light? That is not to say sanctions have no place in this discussion. It's just that that's how I think about that longer strategic thrust. Well, your, your comments actually got uh, to what I wanted to ask all of you about next, but maybe let me start with Peter, but then ask others to weigh in. Um, one uh, kind of theme that came across and what all of you have said, one, the complexity of what's out there, um, but also the uncertainty of what could be coming next or how it would be implemented. And I'm wondering, um, starting with Peter, if you could talk to how uh, private sector actors are responding to that uncertainty? What steps are they taking? How is it that they're able to manage that sort of environment? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question uh, because the, and Sarah alluded to this, I mean, energy companies have long-term horizons for their projects. They need to be thinking about contingencies. Um, the supply chain for goods and technology are long and complicated and in a world of uncertainty, <clears throat> it's difficult to really um, navigate navigate that trail. And so, um, I think what 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 I see among the clients we work with um, is a real um, focus on on heightened diligence on counterparty risk. I would say that the companies are embracing the guidance that uh, OFAC put out earlier this year about the the kind of best elements of a of a well-functioning compliance program. So there's a tremendous investment in trying to understand, digest, and implement the range of controls in this area. Um, I would say there's also some stepping back from certain projects uh, in areas where the authorities are on the books, but you're, it's uncertain how they might be implemented. Uh, we've seen this in, in Venezuela, as I mentioned, where secondary sanctions are available but it's unclear how they'll be utilized. So, same thing um, in Russia in terms of um, possible exposure for significant transactions with you know, Russian SDNs. That can have uh, a broad impact if any of those parties uh, are in your supply chain. So I see some companies stepping back from projects that they might have otherwise tried to pursue and to, to run to ground in terms of absolute certainty on the compliance front. Um, but it's, it's difficult because the, the administration understandably needs to preserve flexibility um, as, as I think um, Under Secretary Mandelker emphasized, but the, the companies really need to be planning in ways that they can have an ability to get out of projects um, without risk of penalty or um, complete projects and recoup payment. I mean, one of the biggest issues that companies have um, seen as secondary sanctions were ratcheted back up on Iran is how to get paid for, for projects that might have been undertaken lawfully in that period, as uh, Sarah mentioned, when investment was encouraged, when there was trading, how do you recoup those, um, those debts? And that's, that's an important point. So it's a very challenging period. Kevin, do you do you want to take a shot at that question? And also, sure. I'm I'm uh, I'm thinking back to a piece that you all authored a week or so ago, where you look at sanctions, but you also look at uh, a number of the other tools that are actually being used, and how this all kind of feeds into an overall picture of operating in what I think is a, a challenging global environment. Um, can you talk a little bit about sure. uh, where sanctions fit? Yeah. So, to, I mean, to Peter's point, the strategic uncertainties that are created have a lot of tactical application. Uh, if you go back a few months, Special Envoy for Venezuela, Elliot Abrams, 
talked about how he, he'd had conversations with refiners in other countries not to buy <laughs> Venezuelan crude oil. Now that, that sounds a bit odd because we hadn't officially said we'd imposed secondary sanctions, sanctions barring third parties from purchasing Venezuelan oil. We had, however, made it clear they weren't to use dollars starting mid-April, late April. Uh, and interestingly enough, those, those threats, those conversations can have the effect of actually implementing the secondary sanctions without having to, to mm -hmm. put the secondary sanctions in place, which itself can be useful because you'll have to untangle a mess if you light up the grid of financial connections between companies that are actually on the side of good uh, mm -hmm. that inadvertently became entangled uh, with, with some of the, the bad actors uh, that the secretary mentioned. Now, there are another set of economic force projection tools. I mean, Peter mentioned export controls, uh, and that's really about our technologies that other countries want to access. You know, if you go back to like a previous set of pipeline sanctions, say from the 1980s on the Amal pipeline, which got built and currently supplies Europe uh, from, from Siberia, but uh, we stopped technology, US technology, from going out. There's other economic force projection that doesn't have anything to do with sanctions, though. Uh, trade authorities, and, and in some ways, when you think about what tariffs are, you know, they're, they're not exactly the, the same tool. They're taxes, taxes imposed by the buyer of a product. But in a context of economic strength, economic strength that happens to dovetail with energy strength, we're actually quite comfortable with that, too. Economic force projection is available across the board when the country is doing well, and also when the country is energy secure. One thing I will say, though, is that those tariffs, to the extent that they've undermined uh, expectations for future growth in demand, have provided a buffer uh, that can, as, as Sarah said, I might not have been quite as forceful. I still kind of like GDP. I'm a fan. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the indicator of price, even a real dollar price adjusted in today's dollars, is not a good indicator because there is an insane amount of supply risk out there right now. Nor is price itself convenient uh, for, for people who really have to transact in this market. Cutting off Venezuelan crude oil did something to a differential between different prices for different grades of crude oil, which was disastrous for refiners that were buying heavy crude oil. Mm -hmm. Heavy crude oil became very scarce. It's available in other places, hard to get from Canada right now. We're missing, apparently, oh, you've heard this before, a pipeline. Uh, but uh, <laughs> there's still some up there, I'm told. Uh, but in any case, the mechanisms of action, uh, you know, it, in the context of, of heavy-duty trade action, it actually makes room for some of, some of the sanctions actions that might otherwise elevate that, you know, bad indicator, but the one we all use, price. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put my vote in the column of, of GDP, yes, but as a, an element that we should be evaluating, not, not the exclusive element. But I, I think, I mean, you got it at um, the challenges of assessing the impacts of sanctions when you're trying to really isolate uh, that variable, but it's basically impossible, and in particular more challenging when you do have a healthy economy and other sources of energy coming online. It, it challenges, I think, the goal of the Undersecretary and her team um, when they go back and iterate and try and assess what are the impacts um, of the sanctions policy. So it's. Um, you put it more eloquently than I just did, but I think that's a really key point and a key takeaway from the discussion. Um, Sarah, talking about impacts, um, maybe focusing a bit on how this is impacting not just investment in energy, but some of the other elements um, 
of developments in the energy sector, whether it comes to the denomination of contracts, and here we can connect a bit to the discussion from the last panel and whether or not some of this activity is pushing um, against continuing to use the dollar, mm -hmm. um, pushing uh, in the direction of kind of workaround solutions. Can you maybe talk to some of the other impacts beyond what might just be the intended impacts of the sanctions policy in the first place. Sure, yeah. And, I, you know, I want to say, I, I think that it, um, a lot of times when we talk about the unintended consequences or the impacts of sanctions policy, particularly in my world on the energy sector, it, it is not to say their excuses not to use the tools, right? They're, hopefully there they're are lessons to be learned about how to use some of them better or how to understand the risks to the tools not actually being effective. So for, um, for I, I had asked the undersecretary, you know, how much they are tracking the degree mm. to which uh, either folks are using non-dollar denominated assets, trying to create like capabilities like what we have here in other places or trying to, you know, uh, uh, develop capabilities that may have been um, sanctioned, you know, such as you know, unconventional oil development capabilities or LNG contracting capabilities or things that they're worried about. They would typically go to a Western-based, you know, contractor or service company or someone to carry out those activities looking to other countries to do. And, and the answer is, as patient as we are going to be on our sanctions, they are going to be less patient on developing those alternative capabilities. And we've seen a significant uptick. Now, that being said, it's, it, I think that the, the argument that a lot of people make when they're evaluating this question of is there, um, is there a near-term threat to the you know, dollar dominance in the global you know, uh, monetary system, not necessarily, no. But we are giving people lots of reason within the energy space to evaluate how close they can be to Western financial uh, capabilities, mm -hmm. to Western technological companies, to Western capabilities. Because to say, which I hear people say all the time, say, well, it's the fault, and this is the oil and gas you know, community because that's kind of what we're talking about, it's the fault of the oil and gas community for going to places where you know, they have dodgy behavior or we have foreign policy conflicts. It's like, well, you didn't exactly pick where the oil and gas was going to be, and that is sort of the nature of the industry. Now, associating with corrupt practices and corrupt regimes is an entirely different ball of wax. But so I think I, I think there's a differentiated. I, the thing I want to I, I think that there we're coming up upon what I hope will be an inflection point in our understanding of how sanctions are affecting a whole bunch of different things, but but the energy sector in particular for a couple of reasons. One, I look at some of the ways in which we are thinking creatively about additional things to sanction, and the the recognition by people. Uh, that, you know what, they're probably not going to solve the foreign policy objective at hand. They're probably designed to punish. They're probably designed to cause some sort of difficulty with some, and I talk about, you know, the sort of Nord Stream 2 thing in particular. So what happens if we sanction Nord Stream 2 and the pipeline happens anyway? What happens if we increasingly sanction a, a, a variety of different you know, projects or activities or sectors and people find workarounds, mm -hmm. right? What does that do to this very powerful tool that we're talking about that's supposed to be helping us achieve some sort of objective? It's not fundamentally different than a lot of military assets that we think about. We get a lot of, of, uh, of, of power projection and stability and a whole bunch of different things out of the defense apparatus that we have. We get the same kind of benefits from the sort of financial system that we have and from the energy prowess that we have. The degree to which we make people try to find alternatives from that 
or the degree to which we show that the things that we try to achieve with those ends we're ineffective at achieving, we'll be doing sort of longer term harm. So I knew that second part wasn't what you asked, but. No, but it does get to kind of the potency of the tool. And as you kind of increase the usage of that tool, does it maintain its potency, which is kind of the overall objective in, in the first place? So I, I think it's, I think it's a, a good point, and, and it's related to the last question I'm going to pose to all of you and then turn it over to the audience for their questions. But it was something that was raised both in the keynote and then in the first panel. Um, but it's the, um, the coordination, the, the quality and sufficiency of coordination with partner countries but also I would say with the private sector, you know, the communication with the private sector to convey the goals of policy and, uh, and the, the aims of that policy and whether from where you all sit, um, how you would assess, I guess, the quality and sufficiency of that engagement, um, whether we're talking kind of on the official sector side or with the private sector. I know you'd like to take Peter, that. Uh, Peter is making the appropriate dodge given the things he's living uh, dealing with those authorities. I'm merely an analyst, though, so I'll jump all over that. Um, look, the problem is, is one of execution and the necessity for, for secrecy when conducting military or the, the economic equivalent of military operations. You don't say, I'm going to attack at this time at this place, and you should, you should know that, unless you're trying to, to help your, your adversary evade the attack. So the secrecy, unfortunately, wraps up a whole bunch of companies into a mess. Uh, they're left with uncertainty, and the, the best decision in response to uncertainty is to not risk. Uh, mm -hmm. Then even when they have clarity, they have a lack of clarity into the decision process underlying the mechanism. As Sarah mentioned, things can change, and you thought you were good, and you're not. Um, the communication, then, is it's difficult to have an interface with the commercial side of the energy sector here in the US and to say, here's what we're going to do and when. I think they do a pretty good job of explaining things after the fact uh, and telegraphing that things are coming. So there's defined dates very often uh, that explain when things are going to happen. Some are mandated by statute, some are interpreted by regulation, but they say, well, here's what we're going to do when. Some are explicitly political decisions, like the withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and the subsequent six-month wind-down, mm -hmm. right, which was structured using statutory authority, but subject to the, the, the choice, the political choice the administration. So you have a sense of what's coming most of the time. Uh, there's more recent examples that are you know, somewhat more surprising. I think uh, one of them was, was uh, General License 8 associated with the Venezuela petroleum sanctions, which I know all of you must know by heart, uh, which allowed five companies to continue operating in Venezuela. Uh, and that license was due to expire uh, in, uh, I guess it was, it was over the weekend, on the 27th, and it was extended for three months on the 26th. There was a lot of uncertainty about whether it would have been. Uh, and again, this is a necessary part of executing economic statecraft. I'm not sure you can do much better than, than that, uh, but it, it creates investment challenges for the companies involved, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with Kevin on, uh, across the board. I mean, I think the administration is, is trying to approach these problems with a more nuanced set of tools, and that is commendable. It's challenging, but it also makes the, um, the dialogue, the process of dialogue with industry more complicated because you ha as you kind of f focus the tool, you have to think about what the intended impact is. They may not fully appreciate uh, the consequences of some of the measures. The, the last panel mentioned the, the impact of 
on aluminum markets when Rusal was subject to comprehensive sanctions, um, was heavily involved in aspects of that. And I think the Treasury Department, through general license, tried to signal to give relief to industry on how it could operate and to try to work with industry to get to a, a place where um, the ownership of Rusal could be restructured, which was a real policy aim, but not to do damage to, to international markets. Um, that's a good case study of both the unintended consequences of sanctions sometimes, the importance of staying engaged with industry uh, through informal means, but through the formal general licenses that Kevin was describing, um, and also trying to be transparent about what, what you're trying to accomplish, because I think industry if it's clear what the objective is, whether it's we don't want trade in Venezuelan crude, or we don't want the transfer of US technology in support of unconventional projects in Russia, if the target is clear, industry can, res can respond. It's when the target is unclear that um, it, there's, there's breakdowns. There's breakdowns operationally because of the complexity of these businesses and the projects and um, the challenges of, of responding to um, policies that, that lack a focus. Right. Yeah, I, I feel like this is a recurring yeah. theme uh, that's that's coming back a lot, mm -hmm. and actually some of the questions from the audience already. Sarah, do you want to weigh in on this question, or you are? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the only thing I would say real quick is, uh, you know, to be quite specific, uh, I, I think that one of the things I wonder about is I don't see, and we had Brian Hook here not too long ago talking about this, I don't think it's going to work. So hmm. what? So what are we going to do? You know, and now we've got sort of the situation in the Gulf where oil prices aren't moving, but we've basically said, hey, you know, maybe maybe we shouldn't be protecting, you know, the Strait of Hormuz on our own, which is not a fundamentally, my colleagues have written about this, it's not a fundamentally different position than we were evolving to in a much sort of simpler, uh, smoother sort of diplomatic process, which is maybe we should have a shared cooperation for who's going to do this. But, we, but I think we've just sort of found ourselves in this position where our maximum economic pressure strategy isn't going to yield a desired outcome. The Iranians have effectively shown that they have this um, very different in asymmetric terms, sort of different reach around the world mm -hmm. outside of what we're targeting. What are we gonna do? Like what comes next? So, so, the, so maybe, Iran stays off the oil market for a while. That's probably something, you know, that, that's a plausible outcome. Venezuela, that could be a plausible outcome. I still don't know how the resolution in Venezuela is going to come about. This idea that patience will yield outcomes, I think patience could also just yield stalemates. And that's okay. Russia, that's different. 11 million barrels a day on the market. That's a different ball of wax. We're going to play with them differently. And so I think, anyway, I just think that the lack of resolution on those things is going to, is, is one of the complicating factors. Yeah. That well, that's another kind of takeaway for me from this morning's discussion is just how different, you can't talk about right. this monolithically. These are yeah. really very different depending on the country and the sectors that we're talking about. Um, okay, enough for me for now. Um, we've got 15 minutes plus or minus for, um, for some questions. So uh, if you have a question, if you could raise your hand, uh, the mic will come to you. If you can just identify uh, yourself and your affiliation, uh, we will go from there. So there's a question right here, a woman in the back. Thank you. Um, I'm Sabrina Hasek. I'm with the Liberal Arts and Science Academy. I'm actually a high, a high school student, and I'm wondering, um, how do we limit and isolate unintended consequences on the private sector while still reducing malign activities? 
Thank you. Well, I, I'm happy to take a crack at that. It's, it's a very good question. As I as alluded to in the last round of um, questions, the, the unintended consequences are, I think, greatest when the policy aim of the sanction is less clear. And, and so um, I think the, the from, my, from where I sit in working with companies navigate these kinds of restrictions, um, it's when the, the, the aims of the sanctions, the, the precise prohibitions are clearest, and when the administration is prepared to be nimble in responding to uh, market disruption. I mean, as we saw with the Rusal sanctions, there were unintended consequences on totally innocent companies that just happened to have supply relationships, joint ventures, um, um, reliance on, on counterparties that, that had derivative risk. And so I think the administration needs to be nimble in exercising some of the licensing authority that uh, the undersecretary alluded to to provide prompt guidance about what the scope of the prohibitions are and where there's relief for companies that are trying to comply with the ultimate objective um, and the kind of wind down um, relief that Kevin alluded to, which is not a creature of statute or executive order, that's administrative. That's something that the administration uh, allows as a discretionary matter. So allowing some wind down um, to help companies transition to what the new expectations are, I think is another way to, to limit unintended consequences. If I could just add one thing. I mean, yeah. There's times when time will assist in that. So you yeah. want to buffer industry yeah. against unintended consequences. Here's a heads up, you've got six months. Right. Well, there's some things you can unwind in six months. Right. There's some things you can't unwind. Right? If you think about the assets that, that are put into the ground in other people's countries, uh, US companies in particular, but even US allies, domiciled countries, companies, uh, have limited ability to just withdraw. Right. They have to write down. Essentially, there, there is a loss. So at some level, there's a willingness to shoot the hostage that comes with this. And uh, that, that isn't an appealing part of the tool, but it raises the question about why are you doing it? And with clear purpose, a lot of companies operating in the US and in US allied countries are usually okay with that because they think about the long game. They think about the long game of working with stable democracies, with transparent rule of law. They say, all right, that's fine. But look, time doesn't solve all things. Sometimes if it's most of your business in a given operating uh, environment and you can't operate in that environment, that's simply bad news. Can I just add one small thing to that? Because we didn't talk about it very much. I think um, depends on what you mean by unintended consequences, but the communication between the executive branch and Congress hmm. is extremely important, right? There's a certain level of, uh, of professionalization and, and watching for these kinds of mechanisms that goes on with the executive branch. I think with CATSA and some other things, there's been the concern that maybe you know, we don't usually accuse Congress of being able to pull things off quickly, but in the realm of sanctions, they have shown themselves able to do things quickly. There's a lot of work going into ensuring that Congress thinks about those types of unintended consequences as deliberately as we've come to expect from the folks from Treasury. It, that will continue to need, need attention. I, I will say, and this is not a plug for think tanks, I don't care who does it, but there's a lot more academic study of mm -hmm this area that needs to be done. We're dealing with it very transactionally. It's very real time, it's very cutting edge. There's very few people sort of thinking about what makes these tools effective and what helps answer the question you said. So you're in high school, go to college, do this. <laughs>
Okay, another question. Uh, here in the front row. Uh, thank you. I'm Robert Thomas, and I'm a reporter for MLEX, a business publication. And basically, my question uh, is trying to take the abstract concept of rule of law and apply it to uh, the practicalities of sanctions. Uh, when policymakers talk about uh, their proposals, they say we have good rule of law here in the United States, uh, and people don't want to be divorced from that. Um, if, if you're sanctioned, you know, or if you're, if you're considering being sanctioned. Um, or taking an action that's sanctionable? Do you want, do you want uh, your, your, your money in a supervised U.S. bank or do you want it in some new crypto uh, exchange? Do you want your contract to be here in the United States where you have courts that are enforceable or do you want to take your chances with Russia or, or China if, if, if that's the workaround? Uh, so basically, my question is, as practitioners, are you seeing this as a motivation among your, your, your clients and the people you deal with? They, they really want to, to be close to the U.S. system and the rule of law, or are these policymakers just making aspirational statements ab about the effect? I mean, it, are you asking, is it driving people away from the U.S. market? Is that, is it? No, no, no. It's the, the U.S. markets. You know, are the, are the U.S. markets really the incentive? Um, I, I, th I think Miss um, Connolly talked about carrots. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, and, and it kind of relates to your concept of the workarounds right. and immunization. Right. Um, are, are you finding people so desirous of being in the United States and having having the, such protections as we provide, or are they saying, "Hey, we you know we, we see workarounds." Well, I think John in the, in the last panel was, was commenting on the fact that these sanctions work because the U.S. system has a, a reach and a scope where it can um, extend far beyond our borders and that, as you say, companies rely upon the, the transparency and the rule of law in the United States for their contracting. They rely upon U.S. suppliers given the quality of the technology. Um, they rely upon the financial system because of the importance of the dollar and the, um, the strength of our, of our banks. I, I don't see, I, mean, I think the, some of the, the sanctions are driving companies to think about contingencies, but I don't see a fundamental shift away necessarily from the importance of the U.S. system uh, in the energy sector. I think the, the U.S. companies, the U.S. technology, the U.S. banking system is still important, but I think there is a growing recognition that there's a, there's a vulnerability. That is a, that is a point of vulnerability when companies are uh, connected to the U.S. system. It's not unlike the realization that um, China is um, coming upon with respect to Huawei or some of the other Chinese companies that are cut off from U.S. technology. There are consequences to being reliant and integrated um, uh, with U.S. suppliers. But I, I, I still think the importance of the economy um, is central. But, I don't know, Kevin, or you, you may have a different no, perspective. No. <clears throat> the, the dollar is really important, too. So yeah. your workarounds involve bearing currency risk. You know, in the most benign sense, using a currency that's more volatile than the dollar or one that you may be stuck in longer without the ability to have the liquidity of the dollar. 
But in, in its more evolved, you have the question of whether the guy with the flash drive who runs the exchange gets lost and, and never comes back. Uh, and then all your money is locked up in digital nowhere. Um, you can't run a business that way, right? You hedge currencies to manage currency risk. But if you incur greater hedging costs, it's a disadvantage. Uh, and in terms of what, what energy investment involves, you know, a lot of the projects and, and, and the, the operations we're talking about, individual transaction by itself is a contract. Right? It's a contract to charter a ship or, or to buy a, a certain volume of a commodity. So you want to have a place where you can contract carefully. Right? That's, that's everything. But when you're actually putting money in the ground somewhere else, you need to have a really strong government behind you when it's time to, to deal with disputes with the government, particularly in an era where we're losing the, the investor state dispute settlement tool from, from energy companies' toolkits increasingly. So uh, I think you know, having, having the US as a nexus is extremely important and very attractive. And doing this kind of business in the multiple billions of dollars another way is just very risky. Yeah, I, I think Heather Conley on the last panel kind of got it at a variation of your question in talking about has Russia, for instance, now done a calculation that this is not the sanction is not necessarily to incentivize a particular outcome so much as just a new operating reality for them. And if that would then incentivize kind of a long-term workaround, just a very different way of doing business. And it probably is most salient when you're talking about financial sanctions mm -hmm. and kind of dollar centrality. I think energy might be a little bit different of an animal, but I, I think that's kind of the uber question overriding, you know, whether the the extensive use of sanctions will ultimately result in, in some sort of change in behavior that means that sanctions are just not going to be as effective as in the past. But it's a fundamental question, I think. Uh, others from the audience. Uh, there's one here in the second to last row. Hello, my name is Adam. I'm with the International Crisis Group. Um, I had a question about the sanctions that are targeting Venezuela, Iran, Russia, all of that you had mentioned, all major oil producers, um, these sanctions will be in effect seemingly for the years to come. I was wondering what that effect will have or what the effect will be on uh, renewable energies, especially for Europe as they look to their energy future, you know, along with the climate crisis, how that changes their calculation on what they should be investing in. So this, this is, yeah, I mean, so there's guys. a lot of ways to answer that, and I think, Sarah, between the two of us, yeah. we could come up with 100 and keep you here for the next four hours. I'll keep my, my stab at it very short. Uh, the, there are still barrels getting combusted in the world. Uh, substitute barrels can find a market today. Uh, there wasn't always a substitute available, uh, and there won't always be substitutes necessarily available. But right now, there's, there's certainly no carbon benefit from sanctions, uh, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, cutting off a specific barrel uh, hasn't changed very much, and if it does, it's very much at the margin. Uh, so the, the differential impact of a slightly different crude combusted uh, makes very little difference in the vast stock of carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, in terms of what happens to renewables and other, hmm. other types of energy, so uh, the laws underpinning some of the sanctions are written specifically to target petroleum, uh, but other sanctions, which are about investment in general, are not. Uh, and in addition, the licensing of technologies. Uh, you bring up, you know, sort of the, the non-sanctions area. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and Peter's, you know, Peter's mentioned that sort of the, the security side of commerce. Mm -hmm. Well, things like Huawei making inverters, for example, for solar panels. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, it's a, they're a big supplier of inverters. The idea that we would have security controls on 
a basic tool for the installation of renewable energy could have a very big impact. The, the other deal is that there's a lot of capital in some of the sanctioned countries. Some of them are in sunny places that have energy evolutions yet to come and, and leapfrogging into renewables makes sense for them. Uh, cutting them off means that there's a lack of an opportunity for that technology to get deployed. Uh, and that, that too can be a problem. But I don't want to hug the spotlight. You've, uh, you've got a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> I'll just add two very quickly. One, you know, I, I, it was a, 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 a weird sort of byproduct of the first Iranian sanctions uh, um, for, you know, run up to JCPOA. We had a lot of queries about whether this was like sort of Iran's renewable energy moment, which I found really <laughs> interesting because it was like, well, it's still hard to do lots of different kinds of investing in Iran. But there was this view that, you know, that there was some sort of renewable energy opportunity and it wasn't a one-off. There was actually a considerable amount of uh, thought put into it. The other thing I will say is, the, um, with regard to your question about Europe and, uh, and, and some of the perspective there, this is where I think that, you know, we, one, we should, we have two problems as we talk about sanctions. One, we sort of talk about them broadly. And there, there's a lot of different ones. They do a lot of different things. We also talk about sanctions uh, as sort of a proxy for coercive economic statecraft. Coercive economic statecraft is something that I think we're going to increasingly run into problems with Europe on. Because as long as we're doing things together, then, uh, then I think we'll have a lot of ground that we can continue to cooperate on. When this sort of becomes a US unilateral as long as it doesn't hurt us, if it hurts you, not so bad, sort of dynamic. I expect over time countries will respond to that. And so one of you know, Kevin's sort of favorite things to talk about in that realm is you know, along the trade side of this equation, the extent to which you know, European countries or the European Union as a whole decide to trade with you know, carbon compliant like-minded countries to the extent that we start to extend sort of you know carbon and, and low carbon uh, technologies into our trade discussions as a coercive measure as well I, this is I, again not not i wouldn't necessarily be against some of those things but but i think that this is we're we're getting into this territory where um thinking about using our, our, both our trade and our sanctions tools to affect other countries' domestic behavior is more and more going to be part of a vision that we see as part of the geopolitics of energy. Okay, uh, I think we have time for one more question if there's one. There's one here in the back. I'm Grace Kong of the Institute for Korean American Studies. Um, sanctions have been credited with uh, bringing North Korea to the table. Uh, I would uh, like to hear your assessment of the sanctions against North Korea now, uh, given the importance of coal for North Korea and the importance of China and the fact that we are having a trade war with them right now. North Korea coal North Korea. affecting our So, yeah, I mean, part of, part of the so in terms of North Korea, coal is extremely important uh, from, from sort of at the margin, China's a four billion ton a year consumer of coal. And so North Korea's contribution or the lack thereof uh, is, is less relevant. So as a coercive tool, it, it, you know, the, the impact where China's, China's energy consumption and trade war impacts have, have been more heavily felt have, have been in cases where, for example, the, for the want of coal, they've been short natural gas because they've been trying to transition away, that would give us theoretical leverage as a supplier of natural gas on the water, and yet they've put tariffs on our natural gas as part of trade war. Uh, trade war is about bigger things than energy, 
and it, this, this comes up over and over again. And national security is about bigger things than energy. Now, from the other side of the equation, if you're a small producer nation, you're not a widely diversified economy like the U.S., with global market access like we have, uh, and the opportunity to reroute cargoes of crude and LNG somewhere else, if you're North Korea, this is an extremely important issue. Uh, and so, I mean, the, 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 you wouldn't want to generalize. There's a, there's a case where you can make the case that there's a, there's a real impact on cash flows as a percentage of total government operations, and it's going to be meaningful. The, the, the consuming nation, though, in this particular case, uh, China as, as a destination market, has a lot of flexibility, and it's fighting a bigger fight on a longer time scale. Uh, this, is, this is also an area where the administration has put in place, um, through executive order and also pursuant to UN resolution, a pretty robust set of secondary sanctions tools that it could utilize and does utilize episodically. But I would say that the, it, it seems that the administration stepped back from the earlier plan to really push um, particularly China with respect to trade with North Korea, whether it's um, North Korean workers or um, cross-border trade. The, the tools are there. It's another area where China is probably assessing, well, what is the resolve? How much will these tools be utilized? Uh, because they're, it's, a, it's an area where you really could exert some pressure through secondary sanctions. I guess an, an appropriate uh, final question because it's another example yeah. as in yes. all the ones we've talked about today where we're really not at the end point. So right. we're kind of exactly. midstream yeah. assessing where we are and what the, the outcome is going to be. So I guess that's a reason for a future event. Um, but for now, please join me in thanking our panelists and uh, for joining the discussion. Thank Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.